Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every episode of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Patty. This week we join the Doctor, Romana and K9 as they search for the second part of The Key to Time and they get caught up in the mystery of the pirate planet. As usual, we'll be discussing the Doctor, companions and villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on the story. So as always, to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. So, Paddington, as usual, I will hand to you for our story recap, please. Thank you very much. Part one. In a large high-tech fortress built into the mountains above a city, the captain of the fortress impatiently summons one of his aides. The aide, Mr. Fibuli, arrives and apologises for the delay and nervously gives his report, all the while watching as a robotic bird on the captain's shoulder stares at him. He goes through the list of mineral ores that they have located and refined, but the captain says they need to find more valuable ones. Fibuli shows him another report showing a newly discovered seam of ores, and the captain orders it to be mined immediately. Fibuli tries to alert him to an unusual discovery in the area, but the captain angrily tells him to get on with the mining. The captain, a large man with many cybernetic replacements for his lost body parts, makes an announcement to the city below that they are about to enter a new age of prosperity and tells them to look out for the omens. Elsewhere, in an underground lair, a group of robed figures look at a visual display of the cheering crowd in the city. The display focuses on a young man who is not joining in with the cheering, and the leader of the group says that he must find him quickly, as the time of great evil is upon them. Meanwhile, in the TARDIS, the Doctor is congratulating himself to K9 over the retrieval of the first segment of the key to time. They go into the console room where Roman is reviewing the technical manual of the TARDIS, saying that the old Type 40 models were no longer on the syllabus in the Academy. Doctor uses the locator rod to find the next segment of the key to time and laments at the coordinates indicated on the planet Calufrax, which he calls a mean little place. He then decides to show off to Romana and teach her how to pilot the TARDIS. However, he quickly gets annoyed when she points out that he is not doing any of the many key steps needed to pilot the ship correctly. He tells her that he has been piloting it for long enough to know how to work it, but she leads him to the technical manual. However, rather than accepting its guidelines, he instead rips off the pages and goes back to the console. The TARDIS suddenly shakes violently and the Doctor's face smashes into the console, but he acts as if it is no big deal when Romana asks if he is okay. Unbeknownst to them, they have actually collided with the fortress planet as it was en route to the rich ore planet. The Captain demands to know what happened and Fibri says it was probably some electromagnetic disturbance. However, the Captain does his own readings via his cybernetic attachments and reveals that they collided with a distortion in the space-time continuum. He orders Fibri to find out what caused it, threatening to behead him if he doesn't. Back in the TARDIS, the Doctor claims that something is interfering with their materialization field, but Romana says that they can land if they follow the instruction manual. The Doctor lets her have her go, but dives for cover with K9. However, the TARDIS lands perfectly on the pirate planet, but when the Doctor looks at the view screen and sees that they are not on Calufrax, he uses it as an excuse to berate Romana's piloting skills. Suddenly, K9 begins to spin around rapidly in a circle. The Doctor and Romana check the console, and the Doctor reveals that they are on the correct spatial coordinates for Calufrax, but the planet that they are on shouldn't be there. Elsewhere, the secret covenant are in the middle of a ritual, repeating the chant, Life Force Dying. This ritual manifests itself as an attack on the young man that they were spying on earlier. The man, whose name is Prelix, is tended to by his sister Mula and his grandfather Balaton. Mula grows frustrated when she asks what is happening to Prelix, but Balaton replies that it is too dangerous to ask many questions and she storms off. He follows her outside and she demands to know why they must be so secretive about what is happening to Prelix. Suddenly a young man whose name is Chemos appears and Mula shows him to Prelix, who has begun to repeat the chant of the secret coven. Suddenly, the orb through which the Coven are viewing Prelix switches to the TARDIS and they watch as the two Time Lords disembark. Romana uses the locator to scan the area, but gets confused when it receives a strong signal from all around them. 
Canine then reports people approaching, and the doctor tells Romanov to stay back whilst he does the talking. However, everyone that passes ignores the doctor's attempts to converse with him, and Canine suggests letting Romana do the talking as she is prettier than the doctor. The doctor's skepticism proves to be unwarranted when Romana strikes up a conversation with a passerby who tells her all about the earlier announced New Age of Prosperity. He shows her an example of the previous wealth he and the other citizens have gained by showing her some precious jewels. Romana offers the man some jelly babies in return, and he thanks her before leaving. However, a few moments later, he is confronted by a black-armoured man who asks where he got the sweets. At the same time, the doctor notices that the floor nearby is covered in precious gems, and he again raises the question as to what happened to Califrax. Back at Balaton's house, Chemos rages about life under the rule of the captain, but Balaton says it is better than being at the mercy of the Mentiads, who are actually the secret coven performing the ritual on Prelex. The leader of the group that says Prelex is ready for harvesting, and it must be done quickly in order for them to complete their preparations for revenge against a force that they call Insanic. Meanwhile, the doctor continues to ask passers-by about Califrax, but they all run from him. Suddenly, to hear Prelex screaming, the doctor goes to investigate, whilst he tells Romana to stay behind. After he goes, she starts looking around through a telescope that he gave her, and she's confronted by a pair of the black armoured guards, who confiscate it and take her prisoner. K-9, unnoticed by the guards, goes to her defence, but she surreptitiously tells him not to attack and is said to go find the doctor. Up in the fortress, Fibbly advises the captain that the Mentiads are approaching the city and says that they must be searching for another telepath. The captain orders that he be found and killed and sends a squad of guards to stop the Mentiads. However, their weaponry proves useless and the Mentiads seem to be protected by an invisible barrier. The captain orders that the telepath be found immediately and he goes through the security cameras dotted around the city and he spots K-9 and orders that he be followed. K-9 arrives at Prelix's house where the doctor is asking about the planet and the captain. K-9 tries to tell him about Romana, but they are interrupted by a pair of guards, and he stuns them. The doctor then asks about the Mentiads, but Chemus and Balaton start to bicker again. Suddenly the Mentiads appear and use their mental powers to knock out the doctor, whilst K-9 fires at them to no avail. Part 2. In the fortress, the captain reprimands his technicians for not having been successful in locating and killing the telepath. He also berates Fibbly for not having yet discovered the reason behind the space-time disturbance, and says that he will not tolerate failure. His robotic bird then flies from his shoulder and Fibbly braces himself to be killed, but it kills one of the other technicians. The captain then threatens him that he will be next unless he finds the source of the disturbance. Meanwhile, back in Balaton's house, the doctor comes to and asks what happened. K-9 tells him of the psychic attack by the Mentiads and the doctor then notices that Prelix is missing. The doctor asks K-9 if he can track the Mentiads and he says that he can. He then asks the others if they will come with him and both Chemus and Mula agree whilst Balaton opts to stay behind. The doctor then looks for Romana, but K-9 tells him of her arrest. The doctor says that he will need to rescue her as well, since she is the locator, and asks where she would have been taken. Mula says that she would have been taken to the bridge, and reveals that the guards are the only ones who travel to and from it to the city. He flips a coin to determine who to rescue first, but when Mula asks him how he can leave such a choice to chance, he reveals that it was a double-headed coin, and that he always intended to save Romana first, saying that she is in greater danger. Mula, however, disagrees, and rushes off to save Prelix. The doctor sends K-9 to go with Mula whilst he takes Chemus with him to rescue Romana. Chemus says that the only way up to the fortress is via one of the guard's air cars. They find one occupied by a sleeping guard, but the doctor manages to rouse him by throwing an open bag of jelly babies at him. The guard wakes up and follows the trail of switch, which allows the doctor and Chemus to steal the air car and fly away. As they make their way to the fortress, the doctor asks Chemus about life in the city, and he says that the people operate the machinery for the mines dotted throughout the planet. The doctor asks what happens if a mine runs out, and Chemos says that the captain announces a new age of prosperity and the mines refill. He also says that the new age always coincides with a change in the stars. 
Doctor Strong starts to realise what the planet is and what happened to Califrax. In the fortress, Fibli arrives and informs the captain that he has received an engineering report that says that their macromat field jet integrator, a vital component in the planet's drive system, has been damaged. He says that they need to find a way to repair it or replace it, otherwise the planet, which he identifies as Zanuck, will be forced to remain where it is. The captain angrily smashes his control console, but he then is distracted by the arrival of Romana. He demands to know who she is, and he grows angry when she insists upon her status as a Time Lord. He orders his bird to kill her, but is stopped by his nurse, who says that all the excitement of multiple killings is not good for his health. The nurse then asks Romana about being a Time Lord, and Romana explains how she and the Doctor travel, inadvertently revealing the cause of the space-time disturbance. They test her further by showing her the Macromat field integrator, and once she identifies it, they reveal it's part of the drive system that instantaneously transports Zanuck from one place to another. At that moment, the Doctor and Key must land, but find the door sealed. After several attempts, the Doctor manages to get the door open, and they proceed inside. They enter a seemingly long corridor, but when Kimus tries to go down it, he remains in place no matter how fast he runs. The Doctor tells him to go back to stand guard at the entrance and then flips a switch on the wall that sends him hurtling down the corridor. He ends up in a lift and then takes us to the top of the fortress. He then finds the command room where a group of guards who are ordered to go find and kill him emerge from it. He goes inside and introduces himself to Fibili, but the captain orders that he be captured. He then orders that the Doctor and Romana be taken to the engine room so that they can repair the drive system. Whilst they are working, the Doctor says that they are in great danger and tells the sceptical Romana not to underestimate the Captain just because of his blusterous way of speaking. He then asks for a reading from the locator, and the confused Romana says that it's coming from all around them. The Doctor says that they need to leave immediately, and tells the Captain, who is watching them from a walkway above them, that they need to go back to the TARDIS to retrieve some equipment to repair the drive system. The Captain orders that Romana be kept behind, but when the Doctor says both of them are needed to open the TARDIS, he instead orders the guards to accompany them. Outside, Chemus is being stalked by a guard, but is then distracted by the arrival of the Doctor and the others. The two Time Lords die for cover as a brief firefight erupts between the guards and Chemus, who manages to kill them all. The Doctor then leads them down towards the mines, and once there, Chemus leads them through the various buildings to the elevator for the central shaft. Their presence is detected and reported back to the fortress, and the Captain orders that they be found and killed immediately, so they do not reveal the secret buried in the mines. After going down three miles into the planet's core, the Doctor informs him that the planet is hollow and is actually a gigantic strip miner. He reveals that Califrax was destroyed by the planet just before they arrived, just as many other planets were before it. Romana then takes another reading with the locator and says that the segment must be down in the core somewhere. Just then, a group of guards appear and they flee down one of the tunnels, with Chemos returning fire. Suddenly a group of the Mentians appear and tell the Doctor that they have come for him. Part 3 The guards catch up to the Doctor and the others and open fire on them, their shots are blocked by a force field raised by the Mentiads. One of them removes his hood and reveals himself to be Prelex, who tells him that they need to hurry as the force field won't last long. He leads them back to the lair where K9 and Muller are waiting for them after having arrived there earlier. The Doctor confronts the Mentiads and asks why they haven't used their powers to confront the Captain and defeat him, but their leader says that they are not strong enough to take him and his men head on. He says that they have been slowly building up their numbers, but it is difficult due to the guards also searching for any emerging telepaths and killing them. Prelix asks what is happening on their plan to fill it with the air of evil that surrounds it. Doctor and Romana explain how the Captain uses the drive system built into the fortress to teleport Zanuck across the galaxy to envelop other planets and destroy them for their mineral resources. Back at the fortress, the Captain gives out about the fact that they didn't destroy the Mentians when they were few in number, but Fibli reminds him that he said it wasn't a priority. He quickly staves off the Captain's fury by saying that they never posed a threat as they never had a leader until now. He then points out that the minerals they are harvesting from Califrax can be used to negate the mental abilities of the Mentiads. 
The captain orders him to increase the mining rates so that they can launch an assault on the Mentiads as soon as possible. Back at the Mentiad lair, Prelix and the others tell the Doctor and Romana that Zanuck was once a peaceful planet until the reign of Queen Zanexia, who sought to build an empire. As a result, the planet was ravaged by war and was easily conquered by the captain when he arrived on the planet. According to the stories, his ship crashed and he was seriously wounded, which led to his cybernetic augmentation. He then took control of Zanuck and persuaded the people to work for him by promising them prosperity. The Mentians revealed that it was around this time that they started to suffer from the unexplained mental stress. The Doctor says that they were being affected by the psychic energy released from the plants that Zanuck destroyed. K-9, having repeatedly tried to grab the Doctor's attention, reveals that his seismic sensors have detected the increased mining activity. Back in the fortress, Fibbly attempts to get back to the Captain's good books by commending him for his work on making Zanuck what it is. However, the Captain angrily laments his fate at being stuck on the planet as opposed to travelling freely through space. In the city, the Doctor and Chemus, along with K-9, repeat their earlier trick to steal another air car, but this time they are stopped before they can take off. They are taken by the guards to the fortress, who leave K-9 behind in the air car. Their arrest is reported to the Captain by Fibbly, who also informs them that they still haven't been able to access the TARDIS. However, he does say that they have located a planet where they can get the minerals needed to repair the drive system, and reveals that it is actually Earth. The Captain orders him to make the jump preparations, and after he goes, the nurse approaches the Captain and says their objective will soon be accomplished. The Captain then goes on to the holding cells, where he finds the Doctor deliriously demanding that no more Janus Thorns be used. The Doctor regains his composure and confronts the Captain about his actions, saying that the destruction of planets for minerals doesn't seem to be keeping with his piratical nature. The Captain orders him to be released and then brings him to a room filled with display cases that hold spheres named for each of the destroyed planets. The Captain reveals that each of the pieces is actually the entire remains of the destroyed worlds, compressed down to their current sizes and held within a stasis field. A shocked doctor says that by all accounts each of the plants could create a black hole due to the stresses that they are under, but the captain says that each of the plants are geometrically kept in balance to prevent that from happening. The doctor is amazed by the engineering feat, but reacts angrily when the captain mistakes his words for appreciation. The doctor berates him for the destruction and mass murder he has caused and demands to know why he is doing it. The captain refuses to answer and prepares to strike the doctor, but he is called away by Fibbly, who says that the Mentiads are approaching the fortress. The Doctor is brought to the bridge where he sees a psychic interference transmitter being assembled and realises that the only place that had the minerals required to power it would have been on Califrax. The Captain orders his bird to kill the Doctor and Chemos, but it is stopped by the sudden arrival of K-9, who piloted the aircar that he had been left in up to the fortress. The two mechanical beasts exchange blaster fire, and K-9 eventually retreats back into the corridors, pursued by the bird. The Doctor and Chemos use the distraction as a chance to escape. The Doctor then is keen down the corridors and they come to a locked door that the Doctor opens with his sonic screwdriver. Inside you see a wizened old woman wearing golden robes on a dais. Chemus goes to approach her, but the Doctor holds him back and says that she is surrounded by a time dam, which slows down the passage of time for anyone within it. The Doctor reveals that she is Anexia, who has been kept alive in the last moments of her life. He says that the power needed to run the time dam is enormous, and probably why Zanuck is being used to refine the minerals of the destroyed planets. Suddenly the doors open and K-9 appears with the destroyed bird in his mouth. The Doctor congratulates his robotic friend on winning and then sends him and Chemus to sabotage the engines, whilst he goes back to confront the captain. He then goes back and says that Chemus and K-9 were destroyed by the bird before presenting him with its remains. The captain sadly takes it off him and then summons Fibbly for a secret conversation. They turn around and declare the Doctor to be guilty and then they open a section of the bridge's exterior wall and extend a plank out into the open sky. The captain then forces the Doctor at gunpoint to walk to the edge of the plank. The Doctor begs for a chance to speak, but the Captain instead shoots at his feet, forcing him to fall off the plank. The Captain turns to Fibbly and his nurse, laughing in maniacal glee. 
Part 4. The captain and the others walk back into the bridge and are amazed to see the doctor standing there smiling. He produces a small box with a camera lens in it and activates it, which projects a holographic version of himself. He says that he found it in the room with Xenexia, and he says that just as he can turn off and on the image of himself, he can also do it for someone else in the room who isn't real. He then points it at the nurse, and they watch as she flickers in a haze of static, but remains in the room. She gloatingly tells the doctor that her body has nearly gained full corporeal form and is no longer controlled by the holographic device. She orders the guards to apprehend him, and when they pause in confusion, the captain tells them to obey her. Outside the fortress, Romana, Mula and the Mentians arrive, and they use their mental abilities to force the main door open. They are suddenly assaulted by a group of guards from the rear, but the Mentians manage to incapacitate them by causing a rock slide. Mula takes one of their guns, but as they are about to enter, one of the guards gets up and opens fire on them. The Mentians try to block his shots, but fail as, unbeknownst to them, the minerals that negate their powers are being used. One of the Mentians is killed, but Romana takes up the gun from Mula and kills the guard. Inside, the doctor confronts the nurse, realising that she is Anexia, the former Queen of Xanak, who has rejuvenated herself into the now corporeal holographic body. The doctor says that her attempts to regenerate herself will fail, and she slaps him in anger at his mocking tone. She vows to kill him and touches a button on her belt, and the captain reacts by aiming his cybernetic arm at the doctor. The doctor, realising that he is under her control, tries to get through to the captain and breaks Anexia's hold over him. He tells her that her plan won't work as the power requirements of the time devil grow exponentially the more it is used and so she will never be able to be fully free of it. She refuses to listen to him and instead orders the captain to deal with the Mentians who have invaded the fortress. But she reasserts her control over him and he orders Fibbly to seal off the bridge. Xenexia orders the drive system to be prepared for the jump to earth and the captain tells her that it will take 10 minutes before they are ready. The doctor manages to distract them and escape before, but Xenexia tells them that he is of no concern so long as the engine room is sealed off. The doctor meets up with Romana and the others and she tells him about the loss of the Mentian's abilities. The doctor tells her about the psychic interference field, but before they can say any more, Chemos arrives and says that they were unable to get into the engine room. The doctor tells him to stay behind with Mula, whilst he leads Romana and the Mentians to K9. They find the robotic dog suffering from severe energy depletion due to trying to blast his way into the engine room. The doctor asks if he has enough power to counter the psychic interference field, but he replies that he doesn't. Before he powers down, K9 mentions a power cable nearby, and the Doctor and Romana manage to connect him to it. K9 is able to divert some of the recharge power to the, his interference field, but the Mentians say that it is not enough for them to be able to open the door. Romana then reminds the Doctor about their attempts to land the TARDIS earlier, and he realizes that they can prevent Sanic from materializing around Earth by doing it first. They rush back to the TARDIS, with the Doctor telling K9 to keep trying to help the Mentians. K9's counter-interference field is detected by Fibbly, who informs the captain, who then orders the guards to find and destroy whatever is projecting the field. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Romana take the aircar back to TARDIS, and en route, the Doctor explains how he told Sir Isaac Newton about gravity after playing a prank on him in a tree. They arrive back in the TARDIS and prepare both it and themselves to try and block Zanuck from materialising, knowing that the danger involved and that any mistake could mean their deaths. The TARDIS and Zanuck both struggle as they attempt to materialise in the same place at the same time, but the two Time Lords realise that they won't last much longer. The Doctor then psychically connects the Prelix and orders Romana to shut off the TARDIS force field as it is limiting the connection. Prelix says that they are still too weak to try and force open the door, and the Doctor suddenly gets an idea, and he orders him and the Mentians to do as he says. He projects an image of the interior of the engine room from his memory, and guides him to pick up a spanner from a workspace. He then guides him to sabotage the equipment, which sets off a series of explosions throughout the fortress. The explosive feedback also rocks the TARDIS, and both the Doctor and Romana are thrown to the floor. They then land the TARDIS inside the fortress and discover themselves in the room holding the original body of Xenexia. 
Romana wishes that they could disconnect her from the machine, but the Doctor says that the energy feedback could destroy the planet. He then gets another idea and leads Romana towards the display room. Once there, he reveals that the Captain had built this as a backup in case Anexia ever tried to usurp his power. Romana realises that the plan was to counteract the effects of the time dam and speed up the flow of time in it and cause Anexia to die without causing Sanic to cave in on itself. Doctor says that the plan wouldn't have worked as Califrax wasn't a real planet, but was actually the second segment to the key to time. Romana says that they can't retrieve it from the display without upsetting the gravity balance, but the Doctor says that he has a clever plan. Meanwhile, on the bridge, the captain mourns over the body of Fibberly, but Xenexia coldly tells him to follow her. However, the bridge door opens and the Doctor and Romana rush in. The captain uses the distraction as a chance to kill Xenexia, but she overloads his cybernetic augmentation and causes them to explode. She then picks up a gun to kill the Doctor, but at that moment, the Mentians open the other door and Chemos rushes in and shoots her. Her body dissipates and the Doctor orders everyone except Romana to leave. He tells her to go and find K-9 and bring him back to the TARDIS whilst he examines the control console of the bridge. He then returns to the TARDIS a short while later and explains that he has rigged the system to teleport the shrunken planets into the centre of Zanuck where they will expand until they fill its hollow void. When Roman asks about Califrax, he says that he has deposited it in the time vortex where they can pick it up later. Romana congratulates him on his efforts and asks about the time dam, but the Doctor says that they will just blow it up, which he says is crude but immensely satisfying. He rings up a plunger and presents it to the Mentiads, who use their mental abilities to activate it and gain their final revenge. He then tells Chemos and Mula that Zanuck's new location in the universe is safe and their society can now grow in peace. He then returns to the TARDIS for a man and canine to go find the next segment to the key to time. End of the story. So... Now that the story has been recapped, once again, I think we will dock at the trivia spot. <laughs> cool. So the air date for this story is the 30th of September, the 21st of October, 1978. The writer of the story is Douglas Adams. Yes, that Douglas Adams. This is story one of three-ish, <laughs> shall we say, for Douglas. He also wrote Shada, which is kind of part of the ish because it was never aired so yeah. didn't really count um, and he also co-wrote City of Death with producer Graham Williams under the pseudonym of David Agnew so it's the other part of the ish, ish. Uh, Douglas will actually also go on to take up the mantle of Doctor Who's script editor next season so for season 17 most people obviously remember him for his famous Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series which he was actually doing at the same time as he was doing mm. Doctor Who Douglas passed away in 2001 the director for the story is Pennant Roberts. This is story three of six for Pennant. We previously saw his work in The Face of Evil and The Sunmakers. We'll see his work again in Shada, Warriors of the Deep, and Time Lash. I should call out, I don't know if we've mentioned before, we will be reviewing Shada, just in case people are curious. Yeah, yes, I think we'll we I think we confirmed it when we said like that now that we have access to the fully done uh remastered version with the animations and the mm. slide footage, it it's only fair to do it. So this story had the working titles of The Pirates and The Perfect Planet. I think The Perfect Planet was a shit title. Pirates, I wouldn't mind this much. Perfect Planet was a shit title. Um, I'm not going to lie. When I was looking up the trivia for this and even watching the making of documentary, so much of it focuses on Douglas Adams. <laughs> well, people are really big fans of Douglas Adams, so I can understand why. 
But I suppose, like, if you think about, like, Douglas Adams has created, like, a very, very popular work of science fiction. So Mm. to have him involved in Doctor in in another one, in any capacity, Mm. it is something, I suppose, to write home about. Yeah. So the next few bits are going to go into Douglas Adams. Um, So this is his first contribution to Doctor Who. Um, And like I said, according to the DVD documentary on the pirate planet um he was working on the pirate planet at the same time as he sold his radio play of hitchhikers to the bbc so he actually worked on both projects at the same time which when you watch it isn't really a fucking surprise <laughs> i'll get to that more i think when i get to my overall um he'd originally conceived it as a drug allegory story about a company which preys on people who fear death by offering machines which can slow time for them but at an exorbitant price. The company goes bankrupt forever, leaving one old lady in need of a source of fantastic energy. Technically, you can kind of still see the addiction thing with the Zangsia character, mm-hmm. but that was his original plan. He also toyed with the notion of the segment of the key to time being in the Atlantic Ocean, or it being, actually being the Atlantic Ocean, or being the Earth's sun, or the moon. But his preference for the segment to be revealed as the continent of Africa was also at one point. Um, to explain how a substitute Africa could be created, he developed this idea of an ancient intergalactic terraformers called the Forgers of Beth Salomon. Guess where that idea went? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right into Hitchhikers. Um, he also suggested the segment be a person. Um, this idea would be used later. Some of his other suggestions, he thought the doctor would find the key to time in the story's opening couple of minutes, disguised as a piece of rubbish. And he would hide that information from Romana because he'd want to search for the segment and use that as an excuse to investigate a mystery, which sounds very the Daleks to me. Yeah. Very Bill like to to be doing that. Um, The bulk of the story then would have dealt with the doctor trying to discover the origin of a new set of moons in orbit around a planet. And there's the whole thing about how that would have worked. You can go to Tardis Wiki if you want to read through that synopsis. It goes on for quite a while. <laughs> um, a couple of other things to do with hitchhikers. At one point, the doctor tells Kimis, don't panic, which is the tagline to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, the planet name Bantragenus 5 is likely a reference to Santragenus 5, which is the home of one of the key ingredients in the Pangalactic Gargle Blaster in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, a lot of Douglas <laughs> in this, and yeah. like you could tell he was doing both projects at the same time. I'll just put that out. Yeah, um, Graham McDonald, who was the head of serials at the time, originally didn't want to put the story into production. He thought it was too ambitious for their budget, and he thought that Douglas was taking the show into too much of a comedic territory. And he sent a letter to Anthony Reed, being like, "I don't think we should do it." They spoke to Pennant Roberts, who said, no, I I think I can do it, you know, with the budget that we have. I think we can make it work. And Graham McDonald's way said, fine, but on your head be it. Like, if this doesn't go, I fucking warned you. So, whatever. Um, On the DVD, apparently, they mentioned that Graham later said, you were right. (laughs) Okay, so. (laughs) And left at that. Um, interestingly in 
the first part of the story, the doctor directly refers to Romana as having good looks. He acknowledges the fact that she's pretty, which mm. is one of the few times that the doctor actually remarks on what one of his companions looks like. He doesn't usually like go on about people being pretty and stuff. Mm. Um, apparently in City of Death, which I haven't seen, but is another Douglas Adams story. Um, there's the line, "You're a good-looking woman, probably," which some people have sort of taken to mean that the doctor doesn't, or maybe shouldn't consider the physical appearance of his companions it's just not something that registers with him is what that later line signifies but clearly here he does notice do you know what I mean? he's not he, stupid if it's if he's addressing it to who i think he's addressing hmm. i think it's more of an insult than a comment i think it's actually meant to be more of an insult than a comment about hmm. i think people maybe have read it a little bit too far to that line yeah like, no that's just from my memory like hmm. Um, another Hitchhiker's reference, um, the Doctor says, standing around all day, looking tough, but too very wearing on the nerves. Um, that was later used in one of the Hitchhiker's radio serials. Uh, the character that became Zaxia uh, was originally a nurse who served the captain who would turn out to be the Master's daughter. Hmm. Douglas then considered making her a female incarnation of the Master many decades earlier than we actually got that. Mm-hmm. And he also considered the notion that the planet Zanak would be preying on worlds which had witnessed the Master's worst defeats. So it was a sort of retribution going around. Now witness the firepower of this funny operation. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Um, he also wanted to actually introduce a new TARDIS console room at the end of the story um, that would take the form of a conservatory looking onto a manicured garden with the console resembling a sundial, which I think would have been very pretty. Obviously, I'm, they didn't have money for that. <laughs> I'm not sure how you feel about the sundial console, but I do like the idea of like this just English country conservatory with a manicured lawn. I quite like the idea of like a sundial influence. Because if you imagine like, the, the other well, console if, room had like you know, the drawing, the writing desk sort of feel yeah. to the console, I quite like that yeah. idea. No, sundial influence, yeah, but if it's just a sundial, then maybe not so much. Um, people watching this may have noticed that the Doctor's fall, where he hits his face off the console, is very sort of, oh look, oh no, I hit my face. Oh look, I have this mark on my face Hmm. for the rest of the story. So you may remember last week I mentioned he got bit in the face by a dog. Yes. And that they tried to cover it up with makeup, and it wasn't really that effective. Let's be honest. Um, But also apparently it was really annoying, and like if you imagine putting makeup on a wound is not really advisable. So they just didn't bother with the makeup this time around. Or at least they tried to avoid the cuts. Um, and so Bennett Roberts is like, oh no, what happened to Tom's face? <laughs> and so that's where they put in the bit of him smacking his face mm. off the console to cover that. Which I think is good because it sort of covers them for the next couple of stories, which which is which is fine. Uh, Mula has a line that says, I get the feeling the Doctor isn't fully in control. That was originally meant to be Romana, but Mary Tam kept having problems saying control. Um, and Pennant Roberts was saying that she was saying it in her natural Yorkshire accent. And then when she was trying to do her, as she calls it, like her straight English accent, hmm. it was coming across as too posh. So they just gave it to Mula instead and just let her say it. Um, there's also, 
I've never really seen like bloopers from like classic Doctor Who, but mm. in the documentary they were talking about like how this group got along really well. Mm. And there's a scene where she's saying something and she just completely fucks her her line and like Thomas is breaking his ass laughing. It was just I, I don't think it was this line, I think it was a different one. Um because the doctor was there, so that wouldn't make sense. Um but it was really good. Um speaking of like Romana, she does shoot someone in this. Mm-hmm. She kills someone. Um, but this is one of the only on-screen occasions it was going to happen. But what's interesting is her reaction, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more in the character discussion. It's had a lot of people debating whether she's done that before, because uh, she seems kind of nonplussed. Mm, very nonplussed. Which I'm sure, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. Yes. Um, originally as well, there's a lot of originally. It's clear this went through a lot of iterations the captain had been exiled by the time lords to another universe and was planning to return to the regular universe by teleporting an entire planet was part of um his plan uh how did you find saying zanxia over and over again zanxia i i, I thought it was all right it wasn't zanxia it's x-a-n-x-i-a there's no middle letter between the n and the x See, this is no, but they, okay, this is the, the thing that I've noticed frequently in Doctor Who is that a character is given a name, yet everyone pronounces it very differently. Well, yeah, like, but that's because, like, you can type this shit, you can't say it, as they used to say of George Lucas and stuff. Yeah. Um, but anyway, herself. Um, do you want to know where her name was originally going to be? Fred. XOXXOXX. I X O X A X O X. Douglas Adams, like, rich- a, did he have a stroke like looking at a, like an OXO cube like box or something? Um, there's got been name changes that moved around. Um, Predix's parents were originally going to be Balaton and Kimis, and then his friends were Mulav and Toril. Then Balaton became his grandfather. Kimis became his brother. Toril was eventually dropped. Finally, Mulav and Kimis's names were changed around. Mulav became Mula, and that was because Pennant Roberts wanted to have more female characters in the episode, which is fine. By more, we get three <laughs> total. Yes. Um, Zanxia's reliance on the time dams to stave off her mortality, again, that's really where the drug allegory sort of stays. Um, mm. You know, they didn't do it for the whole thing, but I think like, if you if you were looking for it, it's there. But I think if you weren't looking for it, you probably wouldn't have been like oh, drug allegory oh, it's not uh symbiosis from tng season one yeah like, <laughs> it's I, not I, quite that bonk bonk on the head about it <laughs> no like and I, I don't like if if he's if he's trying to make it if he's trying to to have like the whole thing of like, you know, like oh her quest for like you know power and the whole thing it was like a drug it's like that's not as original as you think it is because anyone can claim like that the quest for eternal power is like mm. an addiction yeah, but this was like the addiction to the time dam to keep them young. Oh, that was yeah. the oh that was yeah, the, like if, that was the that is yeah. for the original story treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, at one point, the doctor was going to be imprisoned in the captain's torture chamber, where he'd be subjected to her to horrifying to horrifying to horrifying visions, including a Dalek. That would have been interesting to see. Um, the Mentiads were originally called the Mourners. I think Mentiads is better. Mourners is a little bit too on the nose, I think. Yeah. Also, they wouldn't know 
what they were mourning. Yeah. Because they didn't know what was happening. For for the reveal, <laughs> for the reveal, Mentiads is a good enough distraction of a name. Yeah. Um, we have another production dispute. So I know we mentioned production disputes last week, or was it lighting a candle or something was the one last week? Oh, the who, um, who lights and uh, disables the candles. Yeah. Um, so during production, another dispute arose as to who was responsible for operation of a caption scanner. And the resulting delays because of the news cascaded through the entire recording block. Um, The polyphase Avatron prop, which is the parrot. Yes. um, Was stolen one night, um, but was found in a skip the following morning, uh, averting any further impact on the shooting schedule. So someone stole it and then brought it back. Um, Also, (laughs) on the the DVD, they interview, I think it's Douglas Adams, like, brother-in-law or stepbrother or something but he was about 10 when the show was being made and that parrot was his idea and he was loving the fact that the parrot was his idea until he was on set and like it was having they were having so it took hours to film the scenes with that and he sort of stopped being proud of it when he mentioned it and someone just gave him a look of you little shit (laughs) (laughs) um Lastly, we have a member of our cast who we're not really going to talk about too much, um, but I wanted to include and say that uh, Vi Delmar, who plays the older Zanxia, the time-locked one, she agreed to remove her false teeth for the role, but only after they agreed to give her more money. Fair enough. So she's like, okay, I was hired for this role, you're going to pay me some money. You want me to take out my false teeth? No, if you expect me to appear on screen <laughs> with no teeth in, mm. you're paying me more money. Yeah. And they were like, fair enough. Do you know, we're not really showing you at your best. Yeah, no problem. We'll give you more money. <laughs> I have no idea how much more money it was, but good on her for being like, no, no, hold on. That, that's above and beyond. More money, please. Yes. <laughs> so kudos to her for that. So let's go on to our actual cast that we're going to be talking about. So as Prelix, we have David Sibley. This is the only on-screen Doctor Who acting credit for David. However, he has done a large number of um, titles for Big Finish. His non-Who credits include 45 Years, Gandhi, Guesthouse Paradiso, A Family Affair, Death in Paradise, Inspector Calls, and Downton Abbey. Kimis, or is it Kimis or Kimis? I think it's Kimis. Kimis, okay. Kimis is played by another David, this time David Warwick. This is the first of two appearances for David. We'll see him again in Army of Ghosts. He's one of the few actors to appear both in classic and modern Doctor Who. He too has done a number of big finished titles. His non-Who credits include The Fallen Rise of Reginald Perrin, The Prince of Denmark, EastEnders, The Bill and Zedkars. And he was also married to Louise Jameson. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Mula uh, is played by Primi Townsend. Only Doctor Who acting credit for Primmy. Non-Who credits include Harriet's Back in Town, Shizo, Zedkars, Blake Seven, Bergerac, and Grange Hill. There's actually an interesting story on the DVD documentary, which you've probably gathered. I watched the DVD documentary last night. <laughs> it was really curious. Um, they filmed the location shots in Wales. Hmm. And Primmy was actually really excited when they announced that. And it's kind of part of the reason why she took the job, because... She'd been separated from her biological mother at a young age and she sort of figured out that she was in Wales. 
So she took the opportunity while they were there. She had a day off where she wasn't working. And she took that day to try and find her biological mother. And she said that like Pennant Roberts and like the rest of the cast and crew, they were all very supportive of her. And she actually, she was successful. She reconnected with her mother while doing Doctor Who, which is absolutely lovely. It was a lovely little story that they include on the DVD. And I loved the fact that she specifically called out that like Pennant, who's obviously the director and the the cast and crew, they're all like so supportive. They're all so happy for her when it worked out. Oh, Oh, that's so sweet. The captain is played by Bruce Purchase. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Bruce. His non-Who credits include Quatermass, the Quatermass Conclusion, Return to Treasure Island, Blake 7, and The New Avengers. Bruce passed away back in 2008. As Mr. Fibuli, we have Andrew Robertson. Only Doctor Who acting credit for Andrew. His non-Who credits include Oil Strike North, Colin Sandwich, weird title, uh, Alan Mysteries, Elaine Mysteries, A-L-L-E-Y-N. I think maybe Alan. Yeah, I'm thinking Alan too. We're going to call it Alan. Alan Mysteries, one by one, and also Blake Seven. A lot of Blake Seven this time around. Mm-hmm. And lastly, as the nurse slash the younger form of Zanxia, we have Rosalind Lloyd. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Rosalind. Her non-Who credits include The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Wives and Daughters, Crimes of Passion, The Wild Geese, The Walls of Jericho, and Only Foons and Horses. Another interesting story I learned in the DVD documentary about Rosalind, which is going to keep going, is she was actually a really big Doctor Who fan. And had been since the very first episode of An Earthly Child. She was in boarding school and she was like the prefect of her house. Mm -hmm. And so on Saturday evenings, she was responsible for setting the telly program that they were going to watch. And one night they were sitting down and she turned on the wrong channel. So she turned on BBC One, she was going to turn on BBC, whatever it was. And on came Doctor Who. And so she and her yearmates or her housemates or whatever, whatever, I don't know how it works in boarding school, she and all the younger kids mm-hmm. sat there and watched the very first episode of Doctor Who. And then it became a thing that because she was in charge of the telly on a Saturday. That's awesome. They watched it every Saturday. So, I was like, I think, I'm like, that's so cute. So they, she could have seen Marco Polo. Yeah. She said she watched it every week, every that's, Saturday while in boarding school. She'd come down. She was responsible for the telly and they'd mm. turn on Doctor Who, which I just think is so cute. And she, like, she was still watching it when she was doing the show. Like she watched it for years. It was her favorite TV program. She was a massive fan. As soon as Tom Baker came on, she's like, oh my God, Tom is amazing. Tom is her favorite doctor. And then she gets a call being like, do you want to play this part in Doctor Who with Tom Baker? And she thinks she really well herself. <laughs> she was like, That's yes. awesome. <laughs> it's lovely. It's so good. Because like, I remember her from The Wild Geese. Uh, oh, yeah. It's very, very, very small part. Like She plays uh, Roger Moore's character's uh, girlfriend, um, mm-hmm. who... This is how like much now the trivia has kind of informed us. Do you remember the Confederate soldier from the War Games? The one that we said was like trying to be like you know Southern hospitality. Yeah. Uh, he he also played um, was it Caleb in uh, Face of Evil. Mm. Do you try? Uh, his character roughs up her character in The Wild Geese. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's all connected. It's all connected. It's all dairy. There are only ten, there are only ten actors in the UK. <laughs> yeah, pretty. <laughs> it's like this never-ending cycle of just ten actors. Um, I want to say one more thing as well, right? Just mm. because I was speaking so much about the documentary on the DVD, which, by the way, watch it. It's a really good documentary. Mm. Um, they have, like I said, Douglas Adams. I think it's his brother-in-law or stepbrother or something. They have him. And then they have, because obviously Douglas passed away before this DVD was recorded, they have his biographer. And his biographer makes a comment that I am not a fan of. Which is? It was in relation to Romana, and the fact that Romana is very intelligent. Mm -hmm. And we see that in this episode. And he's like, yeah, she was a nice breath of fresh air after the sort of just something for the eyes companions that came before her. And I was like, who the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, what the hell? But it's sort of, I don't know if he believed that at the time. Or if it's, again, this, like, looking back at things. from Because like, this was recorded probably in 2005, 2006, let's say. Mm. Um, looking back at it from the modern lens of, like, oh, the classic companions were just, like, the Bond girls. And they didn't actually do anything. I'm like, No. Leela was more than something for the eyes. Sarah Jane was more than something for the eyes. Joe, I can see why people would think that she was just something good, but there was more to her as well. And mm. so was Lashaw. And then before that, you had effectively children. Yeah. So, and then Barbara, who was yeah, mm. more than something for the eyes, but also something for the eyes. It's like, who the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but like, but even, but even though we said like with Leela, like, like visually, mm. you you could like visually without watching any of her stories, it's like oh yeah, scantily clad, Zena mm. prototype. Then you watch her stories, you know, very layered, very well thought of, a, a fully fleshed out character. Yeah, but like if you if you go by that, if you just go by what they're wearing, right? So yeah, Leela wore, you know, her leathers or whatever. Sarah Jane was usually wearing like pantsuits and like <laughs> like she like I think we saw her in a dress once. Like the ne the nearest two times you can think of Sarah Jane in in that sort of like oh just for the eyes thing is her Planet of Evil. Planet of Evil. I knew you were going to fucking try pip me to the post on it, and the bathing suit. Death of the Daleks. I suppose the Death of the Daleks one, yeah. Not so much yeah. the um. Seeds of Doom one, that was more no. sort of no, that, pink that polka was, dots, but yeah, that was that was different. But yeah, but I don't know where. I just wish people stopped remembering them as like Bond girls. They weren't. <laughs> I think it's when people don't don't go back and watch it. They only watch like the either the highlight reels or the promo clips used for certain things. Because it's again mm -hmm. like what I remember talking before about the time it's like how without having seen anything of her you would just assume Victoria is the screaming damsel in distress mm. as opposed to a character that is unfortunately very unevenly written but is more than just the screamer. Yeah, I think like he said that as well. I think it was something to do with like, their looks and the fact that all they did was scream. I was oh, like, for fuck's sake. So yeah, I can't remember the guy's name but fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we'll end that. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
you very much for that wonderful trivia. You are very uh, welcome. Yeah, seriously, fuck that guy. Uh, <laughs> so we now come to our character discussion, which is where myself and Trish, we compare our thoughts and opinions about the characters in the story. So as always, we have the Doctor. We have the companions of Romana and K-9 who is mm-hmm. just categorically the best boy. Um, mm-hmm. You're the prominent characters of Chemus Mula. Kind yeah, of, yeah. Kind of. And then I think probably the Mentians as a whole, because mm. Prelix doesn't really stand out as an individual. No. No. They are and collective. They are collective. Nature. And then we have the villains of the Captain, Fibuli, and Xanxia, Xanexia, Xanax. <laughs> The nurse. <laughs> Coke, Coke Zero. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who fan, Uber number one. <laughs> right. So, uh, now go to the person I know to be Doctor Who fan, Uber number one. It would be you. So tell us your feelings about the Doctor. 523 years and he still can't drive. <laughs> At least I I'll, do ba- I'll do better. You, you are doing better. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. Um, I do want to make a comment now. Yes. Because I may not make it in the future because I may forget this moment because my memory isn't as good as yours. Mm. Um, screw you, Stephen Moffat, and your whole thing about leaving the handbrake on? Yeah. Because Romana read the manual and clearly the noise went off something new to her. Yes. Also, we've heard the Master's TARDIS take off, so unless they're both fucking idiots. <laughs> yeah. But here we have someone who read the manual Mm-hmm. On screen, says nothing. Anyway, um, a couple of things I really loved. It was fun to see everyone ignoring him <laughs> and then paying attention to Romana. I don't know why I found that so funny. I think he's like, he's like, oh, I'll take charge and I'll do this. And they're just like completely blanking him the whole way. It was just really, really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, I think it was a really good outing for the Doctor. Um, he's still a little bit defensive of his role in the TARDIS and like his intelligence and the fact that he's in charge. But the Chrome Cross now more good natured rather than bitter, like it did last week. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of glad with the I you know I was concerned about it last week. I'm glad with the way that's evolved. Um, it's become less like the Doctor and um Zoe, and more like the Doctor and Liz Shaw. Do you know what I mean? So it's mm. a bit better. Um, there is one scene though that I absolutely loved with a passion. Mm-hmm. to the point where I went back and watched it again and then it came up in the documentary so I got to watch it again which is when he's talking to the captain the captain's explaining about like oh the planets are in like this mm-hmm. the corridor of planets as we call it and the doctor's asking him so what are you using it for like why are you doing it and he's like then what's it for and yeah. he just loses it and I'm like best Tom delivery since Genesis ooh like that, yeah. No, like it's it's passion th- and that anger. I'm like, like the only time I can think of like something is like that sort of passionate, mm. you know, from a sort of like angry questioning space was probably Genesis, but the way like Tom delivers that line, mm. it's like, the, you know, what what's it for? What do you do? It's like you know, what are you getting from this? Like, oh, it's like, then what's it for? Like, what are you you built this toy and you're it's the way he delivers the line then what's it for yeah it's so good so good 
there's a mixture of emotions in it. There's anger, incredulity, sadness, despair at potential, sadness at what has suffered, mm. but despair for what could suffer. Like yeah. there's, it's a very layered line. Yeah, it's but like the way like because you know we've been kind of concerned like oh is Tom gonna start phoning it in you know well, he's been doing it for a while that one line though hmm. that is it's sort of like it's every doctor if that makes sense oh yeah yeah do you know you can sort of you can see like you can almost imagine like if they were to do that now you know. We sort of imagine like sort of overlaying it with each of the doctors mm. sort of like channeling that one question, do you know? Every single one of them, both ones that we have discussed on the podcast mm. and ones to discuss on the podcast, we can all see them delivering that line. And it's, yeah, as you say, it's, they'd all hit it. Yeah. Um, mm. And it's great that Tom has, because like Genesis was more of him doubting himself. Yeah. questioning himself but this is him questioning someone else and like losing his temper mm-hmm. but like you said in despair mm-hmm. do you know it, it, I don't know it, it was really good like I said, if you haven't watched the story um, even if you don't watch it watch that scene because it's yeah. so good Um, even with the captain sort of hamming it up mm. Tom delivers it completely fucking straight and it's brilliant mm-hmm. Um. Also, his relationship and care for Romana is growing, which I'm very happy to see. Mm-hmm. Like, this story takes place, like, the following fucking day. As in, like, we see him put away the first part of the key to time at the start of the episode. You know what I mean? mm-hmm. So, like, it's literally, like, a day or a few days later. Um, but the banter is more um, good-natured. Yes. And less bitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the double-sided coin. The fact that he's like, I was always going to go for Romana. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Like, he was always going to go after her first. And, like, there's a couple of things that I, you know, I, I still wish they'd done more with. Like, is this relationship on par with some of the better relationships the Doctor's had? No, I don't think so. But it's not the worst anymore. Like no. I said, I see it more going towards John Pertwee with Liz Shaw than I do Troughton with Zoe. Yeah. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Um there's a genuine care there that we didn't have last week. Um there's a genuine trust as well, do you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was just I was really happy to see that the banter is banter and not cruel. Mm-hmm. Which is good. Yeah. Do you know? I really I really enjoyed that. I see what um, is, how about yeah. you? Um much better around this time than mm-hmm. compared to last week. Um as you say, less antagonistic relationship with Leon, uh, sorry, Romana, uh, which leads to show like some really good moments between the two of them, you know, mm. some nice character moments, and, like, and it's like <laughs> you could potentially chalk it up to the Doctor's good humor at their first successful outing, mm. but it's the fact that it's once they leave the TARDIS. Because, you know, when he's inside the TARDIS, he's like, you know, oh, it's rubbish about the, um, the technical manual. And then when he sees that they're not on Califrax, he immediately kind of goes back to like, oh, like you, like you're, we're not even worth 100 million miles of the place, that type of thing. Once they go out and once the mystery starts, then the 
game of one-upmanship has stopped and mm. they're, a part, they're a partnership, more so than they were last week. Because I said last week they were very much veteran with the rookie cop they don't want. Mm. Now it's a partnership. Yeah. Um, so I like that. I think Tom's Doctor works very well with Douglas's style of writing. His uh, Now granted, as I said, I've, I've read Hitchhikers ages ago. Um, and I've only seen about half the BBC adaptation. Uh, I didn't watch any of the, the American remake. But Douglas's kind of zany style, I think, works well with Tom's zany version of the Doctor because it does mm. showcase the strengths and the weaknesses um, very well. The highlight of the episode, though, is absolutely that line. The, like, what's it for? Um, it's it's just done so well. Like, it's... Like, we've talked about monologues and we've talked about scenes from previous Doctors. This is just one line. Mm. You know? Uh, White Queen takes Black Pawn, if you will. But uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, no, it, it's a very well-delivered line that it reestablishes... You, it reestablishes the belief that we have in Tom as a great doctor, as a great actor yeah. for the doctor. And it reestablishes just how, I won't say moral the doctor is, but in the sense of, like last week he did a dick move and mm. didn't show, seem to show any remorse over it. Here it's like, okay, you could argue, is, like, is it the scale of the thing which offends you? Um, or what is it? But it just shows that the, the, the doctor does have this passion for keeping all life, well, life safe as much as he can. Mm. And it's like, as I said, it's the sadness of the loss of the, the millions of de- deaths caused by this planet. And it's the despair of what could happen if he doesn't stop it. Mm. You know? Um, great, great, great moment. Mm. And it's nice to be able to talk about the Doctor in a positive light again after what had we nearly three weeks on the trot. Yeah. 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 We had concerns. Yeah. We're good now for a while. So mm-hmm. long yeah. might last. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so on the companions. So we have Romana and K9. Who would you like to do first? Uh, let's do Romana first. Sure. Might as okay. well. Mm-hmm. Only because I have her first on my list. Um, cool. I really liked Romana in this one. Um, I can see why Mary Tam loves this story. This is her favorite story, and I can see why. Um, there's some amazing Romana moments in it. Her piloting the TARDIS was great. Her interactions with the man on Zanak, like where she's like, "Join Jelly, baby." I was like, "Loved it. So brilliant." Her capture by the guards and the way she's so blasé about the air mm. car. Um, the way she is with the captain and like everyone in the bridge and showing off her intelligence and to be honest and i'll talk about more in a second the way she takes the killing shot with that guard do you know there's something Mm. to be said for taking action and not just standing like a deer in the headlights Mm. do you know um it's like all of that i thought was great all the opportunities to show showcase her intelligence was really good um there's a couple of moments as well where like I wouldn't say Mary Tam kind of like broke character. There's a couple of moments where you get like a really cheeky, impish grin mm. that seems very 
different to the Romana we've seen for the last two stories, but it suits her. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, you know, like this couple ones were like because Mary Tam played like eventually she has a Yorkshire accent. She's from Bradford, mm. um, so she has a very northern accent anyway. <laughs> but she obviously was trained as an actor to have a sort of more straight English accent. So she often she was saying that like she often gets hired in roles, or she did at the time, where she's incredibly posh. But it's nice to see that like Romana isn't just the ice queen, which is kind of what they were going for last week. Do you know? Well, they, she can they, smile and she can have fun. And speaking of ice queen, they did like she's a she's a fashionista. She doesn't stick yep. to Time Lord Chic. She's very yep. fashion fashionable. Um the one area where I'm a little bit challenged is that I think I mean, okay. Douglas did great writing for her. Kudos to him, it was fantastic. But there are still moments where clearly it was like, well, this is Doctor Who. So the Doctor has to be the one. Like, you know, he left her behind a couple. Like, you stay here and I'll go do the thing. You stay here and I'll go. You go with them and I'll go do the thing. Which I'm not a big fan of, do you know? Um, You know, I get what she was playing with the Captain where she was like, oh, well, I can't fix this because it's too old. Mm. I'd need the Doctor to do it. I kind of get what she was coming from because it ties in with what she was talking about. About the fact that, like, that, you know, the Doctor's TARDIS wasn't studied at the Academy because it's too fucking old. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she doesn't do ancient technology yeah. <laughs> or, like, antiques, as she called it. Um, but at the same time, I don't quite like her referring to herself as his assistant. <laughs> I'm like, partner, maybe? Mm. Um, but that has a little quibble. Like, in fairness, she did great in the story. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's a much bigger improvement over last week. Oh, yeah. Where she started great and then just kind of pittered out. Here, she starts really good. She's set aside a couple of times. But again, it's a four-parter. There's only so much they can give her to do. Mm. But then every time she comes back in, she comes back in strong, which I which I enjoyed. Yeah. Um, In terms of her taking the killing shot, I kind of get where people are coming from. Like, she is kind of blasé about the whole thing. Like she grabs the gun, she shoots him. She doesn't show any remorse. And I don't know if that like people take that to me like has she killed people before? I don't think she has, because she's never really left Gallifrey before. From hmm. what we can tell. I think yeah. it's more a case of she was like, We were sitting ducks. I did what I had to do. Do you yeah. know? I think it was more of a you know, using the Ice Queen mask, as it were, mm-hmm. to sort of protect herself. Um but yeah, I've kind of rambled a bit. I really liked her in this one. Cool. I'm liking her generally overall as we go. So that's good. Nice. Would you? Um, so we're peeling back more layers to this onion. And mm. it's a pretty enjoyable experience. I, like, I completely agree. Um, it seems like her natural confidence slash arrogance mm. is coming more to the fore as she gets used to life in the TARDIS or life as being part of the TARDIS crew. Um, now there's something there as well. And I was just, I want to get your opinion on it. Mm. I don't know if there's like still this like real world naivety that she, she has, or is it that we got so used to Leela's danger sense that Leela just seemed to be constantly aware that, he's shady, something's not fucking right here, so on and so forth, that 
Romana not having it is just a complete um it's just a complete night and day type characteristic or is like there's just this she is still very naive is there a scene in particular you're thinking of um i i think it's a combination of two two, it's a combination of two things it's when she gets picked up by the guards initially she seems very blasé and then when she first and when she meets the captain and then she goes to the doctor like, oh, him with his all great sky demon nonsense and all this type of stuff. And it's like, okay, you're like you're smart. You're a very, very intelligent person that I thought would have, like the doctor, seen past the bluster and seen the real danger that lies within. I think I think with the captain, particularly that, that line you called out, I think there is not a little bit of naivety there, but just lack of experience. You know? right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I think in general, though, like the way she was with the guards, the way she was when she was first brought into the captain, the way she behaves on the bridge. Like, I would consider that to be more her kind of cool hand loop type thing. Yeah, it's her. What was it? We don't question it when the doctor does it. Yeah, no, no. I I think it was like, and like. It, it's just something probably like where I was kind of going, is this a thing where I got so used to Leela just being constantly switched on? Like, to... You've Leela like constantly on the aggressive path. Like if Leela was brought onto that bridge, A, she wouldn't have allowed herself to be arrested in the first place. Hmm. Um, but like when she's brought onto that bridge, she would have been like very aggressive, very up in their face and whatever. Hmm. She's just a different character. Yeah. You know, for her, it's a case of like, oh, look at you with your little antique air car. Like she just sees them as... So fucking beneath her. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of like Ice Queen up her own ass. Yeah. And a little bit of lack of experience in terms of it. And we saw this last week telling, like, not be able to identify that under the bluster there is intelligence. Hmm. Do you know? Hmm. Which we as the audience probably also didn't realize until a couple of scenes in with the captain that there is an intelligence under the bluster. Hmm. So I wouldn't really chalk it up as like Yeah, I I think a it's concern more... or anything. I think it's just because yeah. Leela was so fucking aggressive all the time. Yeah, no, I, I think what it is is that like like Leela was a game changer in terms of being a companion. That to hmm. go back to I won't to go back to what kind of came before, it it just is hmm. a small bit of um it's a shift, all right. I wouldn't even really say that Romana is a, a shift to what came before. I think Romana is a time lord. Hmm. And like I, I said, you don't question it when the doctor reacts that way. Yeah. It actually kind of reminds me a little bit, and I hate to fucking say this, um, of the way Rose was in season two, where she would have the same sort of reactions to things as the doctor would. True. Do you know, yeah. like in Tooth and Claw, for example, being a prime example hmm. of that. Where she has the same example, the same reactions that he does. Hmm. We don't question it when it's, when it's not the doctor doing it. When it's the doctor doing it, so I would say it's a time lady thing. Okay, or cool. a time lord thing. That's great. Um, I had down here like, as I was speaking as Leela, speaking of Leela, but then again, I really forgot that you were going first with this. Uh, <laughs> no, the she is pretty cold blooded with that blaster, and like. It's very unnerving, but it's also funny 
because I was half expecting her to pull up like the Obi-Wan line of like it was so uncivilized as she just throws the <laughs> blaster down on the ground. But no, I do agree with your point that it's like it's her logic and her logic applying to a practical situation. Mm. He should like the Mentians can't block him. It's him or us. I chose us. Yeah. Yeah. So and like maybe there might be a scene like off camera or, or maybe even a part in the novelization if this was novelized i don't know if it was but um no it wasn't because douglas. um <laughs> douglas didn't want to do it but he also didn't want anyone else to do it all right yeah <laughs> um so yeah like i think probably kind of like the doctor like she, as you say it's a time lord thing where they can they can compartmentalize the emotion at the moment. Mm. I think as well, like, you know, I think the logic is a good way to look at it. Like, if that was Sarah Jane or mm. if, if that had been Joe, for fuck's sake, yeah. there would have been a fallout moment later, mm. do you know? Um, and maybe even, you know, we thought it would be like the doctor taking her to task mm. about it later. Whereas I think with Romana, it's, she responded in self-defense with equal force to what was being let out. Mm. Do you know? It was self-defense. With equal force. Do you know? And that was, you know, not necessarily an eye for an eye type thing, but like, someone's trying to kill you, don't fucking yeah. pussyfoot around. Yeah. You know, take get a first, shirt, whatever. Get a shirt made that says Romana shot first. <laughs> Except she didn't. That was the whole point. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah. <laughs> Special edition version. Uh, but yeah. So, sorry. So, moving on to the bestest boy. Very good boy doing very good things. Hmm. Um, I originally was a little bit concerned that we weren't going to have much of K nine because I don't think you mentioned K nine in your list. I thought I me. did. Maybe I did, and I just I don't know. I wasn't sure. Um, I actually really liked K9 in this one um, mm. I love how he's looking out for everyone even people he barely knows I love how he goes with Mula and he doesn't treat her as like you know uh, a task yeah. or baggage he's talking away to her the same way he does everyone he's educating her he's you know treating her like he does everyone else and looking out for her which I thought was really good he's flying air cars he's taking out robot parrots and you mind but the whole robot parrot thing, like that's that was the canine's own strategy. Like the doctor's mm. like, where the fuck are you going? <laughs> yeah. Initially, and canine's like, no, I'm gonna draw him after me, and we're gonna have our thing, and I'm gonna fuck mm. him in the end because I'm canine and fuck all bitches. Yeah. Um. Which actually leads to a thing that came up in the documentary on last week's episode, where there were concerns about canine. The canine's a little bit OP. <laughs> Like more than a little bit. Like K9's only restriction is you can't really take him outside. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, where's the challenge? Because K9 can do it. Um I actually thought it was quite sweet when he was when his battery was running low. And I'm like, oh Yeah, I I that that's one of my talking points. Um the the way that, that scene played uh, but I also love at the end where he's like, you know, and then Ross like, what he says like he said there's a there's a power cable behind me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> like, but also, K9, you could have mentioned that earlier. <laughs> yeah. like, 
Um, but I do love his back and forth with the doctor. I think they're really, really good. I think, like mm. I said, you know, people I think sort of consider K nine to be one character mm-hmm. or one thing for all of Doctor Who, but he's not. Like this is K nine Mark Two. Yes. And actually, K nine Mark One was Leela's dog. K mm-hmm. nine Mark Two is very clearly the Doctor's dog. Mm-hmm. Joan, we saw that last week and we see it again this week, but I love the back and forth that they have. And also I like how he's getting closer to Romana. Yeah. That was nice to see. Because I, I, I was a bit, you know, a bit concerned about that last week. But um, no, K9, good boy, doing good things. Mm-hmm. How about you? Um, I love John Leeson. I really do. Because like, we all know that K9 is the bestest boy. Mm. But... Like John Leeson has given such life to this character with his voice work. It's it's incredible. Mm. Like the battle with the parrot, I mm. actually really enjoyed because they it came across to me as su- a super intense life or death struggle between the two of them. Like you mm. know. And K9 bringing him into the corridor for his where the bird's maneuverability would be negated and it then it would be like a kind of like we didn't see it obviously because of your know, budget but we can picture it in our minds where it's like a, a like a quick draw contest at that point but like that the worry you have about canine's safety hmm. doesn't happen without john neeson's character work no it doesn't and your part there about his battery depletion that's my favorite part of canine in this story is like the little kind of it's like you know like you see it in movies like when the dog is wounded defending its master mm-hmm. and it tries to raise itself up that's what it is here it's K9 like trying to still help the doctor while his battery is just draining out of him and again it's just like the little kind of you know and it's like it doesn't happen without John Gleason's amazing character work the interesting thing about that right? and I can't remember if I mentioned this previously and if I haven't I apologise because I really should have you know, spoiler alert, K9 on set is a prop. Yes. With a guy with a remote. Mm-hmm. We, Basically we a giant remote controlled car. Um, in the shape of a very square dog. Yes. Um, and, you know, similar to the Daleks and whatever, you have John off to the side doing the voice. Obviously, John isn't in K9 because mm-hmm. it's too small, unlike the Daleks where there's at least someone in there. John's off to the side. It's just the thing just goes around yeah. by remote control. That's when they're filming. In the rehearsal room, John gets down on all fours. I, I said that back in Invisible Enemy that he, yeah. he, he gets on all fours to act out the dog. He And he's there so that when they get on set to do the shoot, not only do we connect, because we get both. We get the voice and the the performance of, of, of the dog together. But for the people on set, they don't really have a voice over there. They have a voice and they have a memory of a performance, yeah. which is all John, mm. which is lovely. Um, I love John. He's also like a pleasure if you ever get to meet him. He's such a cutie. He's like... 
He's so adorable. And he also like he talks to fans in the canine voice and like whatever. But what I'm interested to see is actually how the canines change. Mm. So this is canine mark two. Yes. There is a canine mark three. Mm-hmm. And a canine mark four. And a canine mark four. Um we're not gonna get to three and four for a while. Mm-hmm. But I'm gonna be now that I've sort of realized that there is a difference between the two, I'm curious to see how that evolves. Because when I watched, because like the only canines I'd seen before now were Mark Three and Mark Four. Mark Three only has two stories. Yes. Ish, which would have been a girl's best friend and school reunion, mm-hmm. and then the Mark Fours and the Sarah Jane Adventures. Mm-hmm. So you don't really get to know Mark Three that well, no. I think. And Mark Four has like its own personality, which is brilliant. Mm. Um, but it's going to be interesting to do like a comparison of like the regenerations of canines. Yeah, which ones are like, the best? Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm. yeah. Uh, currently, um, because he's only had two stories, I'm afraid Mark Two is in the second position. Yeah, but he's only had two stories, so mm-hmm. we'll see. Ah. <laughs> oh. So, prominent characters? Yes. So, so we, we have, have the Mentiads, Mula, and Kinos. Yes. So, Mula, Kinos, Mula. Okay. I think we'll probably do maybe Mula, Kinos, and the Mentiads, because I think the Mentiads probably have the most talking points about them. So, yeah. Mula. Yeah, so originally you didn't have. Also, Mula, I just keep thinking of money. Man. Oh, I, think I, keep thinking, I keep thinking of the, uh, Mulan. No. Not because she reminds me of the character, it's just the name. No, I, was, I hear Mula, I think money. But also, mm. I hear Mula, I think Mala. <laughs> and I'm like, no, she's not like really cheap Play-Doh. No, she's not made out of Play-Doh, no. <laughs> yeah. um, one thing about Mula, like, so like, you didn't have her on your list originally. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, maybe you just mention her like in the actor piece, just because yeah. Yeah, sometimes you mention characters in the actor pieces because the actors are interesting and um, but I actually really wanted to talk about her because I think she's a brilliant character it's just the four parter so she doesn't get to do too much hmm. but, like she's clearly very caring and considerate and compassionate she has a great love for her brother regardless of what anyone else thinks she will go off and she will look for him and she will defend him Regardless of what her grandfather thinks, regardless of what the doctor's going to do. Like when the doctor's like, I was always going after a man at first, she's the more dangerous. Mula's like, fuck you, I'm going after my brother. Like, what the fuck? I'll, I'll go on my own, I don't care. Do you know, she's very dedicated to her brother and clearly cares about him a lot and cares about him enough to overcome this bias that's been almost bred into them. Mm. Do you know? She doesn't, like, her grandfather's like, oh, the Mentiads will come for him, so the captain will do him an honour by killing him before the Mentiads can take him. And that's clearly the way they've been raised to think about it. And she's like, I don't care what you think. He's my brother. Mm. Like, the Mentiads can't have him because she doesn't trust them at this point. But the captain can't have him either. Like, no, killing him is not a solution. Mm. What the fuck? Um... But then, like, you know, obviously she goes off and K9 is sent to, to go with her. She listens to K9. She, and when she finds out the truth about the Mentiads, she's immediately on their side. Mm. 
do you know, like when K9's explaining how he doesn't think the Mentiads are dangerous, she's like, what do you mean? And she listens to him and she takes what he says on board. Um, I don't know. I don't think we saw any female Mentiads. I don't think so. But I would wonder, since her father and her brother both have this telepathic ability, I wonder if she would develop it at some point as well. Um, but yeah, overall I thought like for for the counterbalancing female character, I thought she was really good. How about you? So like, I don't have a huge lot to say about her other than the impact that she, she the impact she primarily makes in the first two episodes. In the second part, she doesn't really play a huge factor into it. But it's it's the part that she plays primarily into the first two parts, which is, as you say, defiance of the, the cultural norm. It is you in a society where it's you do as the captain decrees. It's family putting family before that decree is a very we've seen it in other media before, and it's a very dicey road to go down here, and we've seen the threat of what the captain is like. It's it's a very tangible threat. It's a very real threat. And her defiance of it, especially when you have like, when you have a character like Balaton, like the grandfather, to actually represent the cultural norm as well, mm. it does make some... If if it was a case of like, there had been no grandfather or parent there for just her and Kemus, like saying, oh, we'll defend him, it wouldn't resonate as much, I don't think. Mm. So you have the representative there to go against, it's good. Um, and then, yeah, as when like or, or like her talk with the doctor as well is great it's like how can you how can you do something up to chance um mm. and it, it it does like before obviously we see the double-headed coin reveal it's like or even before we see the double-headed coin reveal it's like how do you know that you're taking you're you're doing the right option mm. like how do you like because it's i suppose like anything any big decision like how do you know you're doing the right thing and like to, to leave it to something as arbitrary as the flip of a coin can seem very, depending on the scenario, it can be very throwaway or be very callous, mm. you know? Um, so I thought that was like a really... This story overall has some fantastic ideas mm. that between, the between I suppose, the jigs and the reels don't always land as well as they they should or as the mm. aim is I think but the nuggets of them are performed and they're really good performances mm. yeah. so that's yeah. pretty much what I have to say about Mula cool so if we go on to Kimo So yeah. um, poor fella <laughs> he really wants to be involved and like he's really passionate but he's also like a small child when he's told that he can't be mm. you know he's kind of like oh but I, but I wanted to Okay, okay. Um, that being said, though, he's not petulant about it, which is interesting. He's very compassionate, and he's very passionate. Hmm. Um, like we can tell that from the off. You know, he backs Mula one hundred and ten percent. Um, against her grandfather. Um, but like when he's told you know stand guard outside, or when he's told things like he he doesn't throw a strop over it. Hmm. He's like, oh, but I can like you know he fights it a little bit, but same as like. You know, a toddler fighting bedtime. He's like, oh no, I can stay up. I can stay up. I'm like, no, you fucking can't. You're going to be conked in two seconds. Mm. <laughs> um, 
but he is perfectly willing to let others lead when they have more knowledge than he does. He readily recognizes the fact that he is incredibly ignorant of what's going on, you know, and he knows that he knows he doesn't have enough information or enough understanding to be the one leading the charge. Or even to be very helpful, you know, but he still wants to help, Hmm. you know, he'll still do his bit. You're like, he, you know, at the end, you know, he shoots the holocaust. The hologram of Zach not realizing that she's a hologram. He doesn't, you know, quite get how that works. Doesn't understand how it works, but he's still willing to jump in. You know, and like even when the Mentees are trying to break into the engine room, you know, he he pushes forward and he's chatting to them, and he doesn't force them. He doesn't get angry with them. He's not like, come on, hurry up! And he's he's like, okay, and he and he shuffles his way back out between them. It's like, cool, I'll get out of your way. I'm here if you need help. Like, cool, I'll leave you to it. Do you know what I mean? Which is very sweet. It's a very um this is a very nice character. Yeah. Do you know? That it's not all male ego. Mm. It's compassionate and passionate and smart enough to know that you're not smart enough to help, but yeah. hey, you're there. <laughs> and if someone needs you, you're more than happy. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. Like, to me, he has all the gusto of Scrappy-Doo without the annoyance of being Scrappy-Doo. Like, there is an element of, let me at him, let me at him. Um, I was like, he he does not, to my mind, he does really nothing to move the plot forward or help with the resolution of the plot. But he's a constant source of support for for th- those that are driving the plot. Mm. Um, kind of like what we said, you know, like the character of Binro last week, you know, he helped add an emotional heft and flesh out other characters as a result. Mm. Here we have a character that supports the advancement of the plot by supporting those that are actually doing it. Mm. And I love again, as well that he does have a moment where he he goes off with K9 and now that you've mentioned it, you're like, we have the dog and we have the puppy. <laughs> Yeah, Kimbers is the puppy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, and like you know, and to be fair, and it's not even as if like you know he's, um, the word, it's he's capable as well. Is the, and we see that in the like you know he kills three guards you know outside the the, the fortress like and he. Mm. Does it under like he's outnumbered three to one, and it's a pretty intense firefight. Like, and he manages to get away unscathed, thankfully, and make up mm. the three guards. Or as well, like when at the end of episode two, he's covering the retreat. So yeah. it's not as it's not as if he's like a boy playing at war, you know. Mm. Um, he though as I said, he is very capable, and he is a great support for the support, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Mentiads. So yes. I found the Mentiads to be really interesting. Mm, yeah. The idea of what they go through every time the planet jumps mm. is terrifying. It, because essentially, what they're doing is they're Obi-Wan Kenobi living Alderaan five feet away over and over 
and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, a million voices crying out in fear, suddenly silenced. Yeah. That's essentially what they live every time Zanuck jumps. And not only that, but the fact that they also feel, and I love the way they explain it, that they feel the that the energy that's released when the planets are mined to nothing mm. that there is psychic energy in there as well you know it's mm. all just energy but some of it travels on psychic wavelengths and that's what they're feeling it's fucking terrifying mm. to think that that's what they go through and they go through that not realizing what the fuck it is and, and that's the bit that's like they know that zanuck is a problem they mm. know the captain is a problem but they don't know why honest to goodness don't know why they're feeling what they're feeling Mm. and to the point where the captain is easily able to set up this sort of you know animosity towards them where people would rather die than join them do you know Mm. if you have someone who starts screaming out about the pain and the dying then dementia they're like the fucking boogeyman Mm -hmm. but if you imagine you're someone like Prelix going through that terrified that they're going to come and get you but then there's also the other side of they then have this oneness once they realize what's happening mm-hmm. which is an interesting but once Prelix realizes why he's being called and why like that he finds like solace with the wider group it's, it's a very interesting idea and i also mm-hmm. love as well that like while they do attack the guards to defend themselves K9 makes it, the K9 says it the best when he's explaining to Mula. They don't want to hurt anybody. Mm. They'll put you down, they'll stun you, but they're not trying to hurt you. Mm-hmm. They're, they're fundamentally innocent. Mm-hmm. They just want the pain to stop. <laughs> Which is, like, it's a terrifying concept when you think about it. Mm. Pralix is I find interesting because like you said, like he's not really a character at the beginning and then when he joins the Mentiads, he's just like this spokesperson because we know his name. But it's interesting that he sort of becomes like the de facto leader of that group very, very quickly. <laughs> yeah. I'm like that's odd. Like didn't they have a leader before Prelix came along? Maybe they didn't. Maybe they're tr- a true collective and again it's the best person for the job is the speaker or whatever, but that was well, something they, I found a little bit odd. <laughs> like, because like, there was a leader at the start, like because he was leading them in the ritual, and like, he, that character mm-hmm. does crop up every now and again. But I think it's because like we've seen Prelix go through the um, the transformation process that he's probably presented to us as the the gateway into the Mentiad. No, but he's also the newbie, so I'm like, yeah, he's been he's been a Mentiad for like a day. Yeah. yeah, the fact the doctor connects his mind with it, the, the guy, like yeah. the guys had one day of school. Do you know what I mean? True. Yeah. <laughs> and you're expecting to build a rocket ship. Mm. Like, what the hell? Um, but yeah, an interesting, an interesting concept. The Mentiads. How about you? Um, oh no, I completely agree that they're a great idea. They're fascinating. Like a psychic manifestation of they are a living psychic manifestation of vengeance of the destroyed planets. Because they that's the core message that they have is that they need to get take their vengeance out on Zedek. They don't know why, but that's what it essentially is. 
it's like mm-hmm. this weird ghost rider slash phoenix force thing that it's inhabiting them like i have so many questions that i'm kind of annoyed that there's no novelization for this because is it one homogenous psychic hive mind that they're all attached to or because it seems that a person's psychic abilities kick in when a, when like a planet is destroyed because... oh oh i was wrong what? i was wrong there was a novelization but it came out in 2017 okay cool. it was after I... douglas right. passed away I, so I'm... there is one I might, I might pick it up because no, actually, I think I will pick it up because I'm very interested to see what it is like. Because, like, a, like so a, a person's psychic abilities kick in when our planet is destroyed. So, mm-hmm. Praelix has kicked in at the destruction of Califrax. And I'm wondering, like, does does the psychic that joins the Mentiads at that point in time, is he like an avatar for the psychic energy of that particular planet? Or does he just join this, as they said, a gestalt entity? Like, is it just this one big hive mind that they're all feeding off of? Um, I'd love to know, like, do any of the psychics die as a part of the process of turning? Like, were they, were the Mentiads essentially nursing Prelix through his transformation, uh, his manifestation before they came to take him away? Um, so there, there's a lot of questions there and like, it's a fantastic idea and it's a haunting idea if you think about it because think mm. of all like, the loss and tragedy and everything like, that's going as you said Obi-Wan Kenobi yeah it's... it reminds me of Obi-Wan it reminds me of um, Planet of the Ood yes when the doctor sort of lets Donna hear what the Ood are, are singing and you just yeah. get this sense of pain and it reminds me as well of um, The Beast Below yes um, so there's a couple of times in Doctor Who where this idea of shared pain or like pain at an enormous level, this collective feeling for it. Um, and those three examples, actually, mm. those other two examples I really loved. Um, do, those actually coming to my mind as well. Um, do you remember that movie, The Crow? Mm. And how he kills the bad guys. He essentially just transport transports. He mentally transports all the pain that his girlfriend went through for the twenty four hours that she was in yep. surgery into him, and it's just an overload. Yeah, like that's essentially what I think that these guys are walking around with. And I don't know if you had the same idea or the same thought, but like the aesthetic of the Mentiads is that they all look like walking corpses, mm. and if that kind of does reflect the fact that, that they're all psychically linked to dead planets. I saw it more as, you know, the, the way they describe it is that, um, well, a new Mentiad is awoken when a new planet is encircled. Or it's not necessarily when the planet is destroyed, that doesn't happen until the end. But yeah. like, when a planet is encircled, right, when the planet is captured and the mining starts. But, like they describe it that like the times of prosperity have been happening more and more and more. And so I sort of saw their like really gaunt look as just ever present fatigue because there is no like particularly recently 
for them. There is no break. As soon as one planet is exhausted, it's on to the next. They never get a break. Like, literally, as soon as this planet was exhausted, they were going to be going on to Earth straight away. Because, you know, because you're mirroring that with Zanxia and her need to get more power, get more power, get it faster, get it better. Um, so I sort of saw it that way, not necessarily that they were looking like no, I actually know. I just I, saw I, them looking at... Now that you say that, that does kind of make sense because... Oh, who said, who said it? Um, oh, no, when Fibberly and the captain were talking about the Mentians, mm. and it's a case of, like, now they're torn on our side, so which is probably due to the increasing numbers of them. So if you go back mm. to the start, there was less of them, so they didn't, they didn't really have to worry. Yeah, yeah there's, there's another sort of... There's another sort of allegory that came to mind, and um, I will preface this by I don't mean any offence by this, but they almost resemble in my mind someone who's suffering from AIDS. Yeah. In the sense that their bodies are constant, well, their minds, but the body is the, is the vessel of the mind, is constantly under attack. Yeah. And, you know, someone who suffers from HIV or AIDS, obviously any illness is such a strain mm-hmm. on the body and obviously you get sick once and you get weakened which means you're more likely to get sick again and yeah. again and again and it sort of reminds me of that a little bit again I don't mean any offence to anyone who, who suffers from that by the way, Um, it's just the thing that came to my mind as we've been talking about it No, I, I can definitely see that, yeah and it probably would, it would get to the extent of where it's like the exponential growth would actually just burn them all out, so that they would probably yeah. just all die off in the like in the one birthing process. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, very interesting concept. Mm. Very, very in- interesting. incredibly interesting concept. Yeah. But on the other side, we have mm. our villains. The villains. So, and... Mister Fibuli. Mm-hmm. The captain and then the nurse slash Zanxia reborn. So, that order? Yeah, cool. cool. Sounds good to me. Mr. Fibuli. Um, mm. And I love that he's Mr. Fibuli. Yeah. Because it's so, like, the first mate on a ship. It's so good. Mm. Um, if your captain isn't going to read the documents you're handing him, maybe speak faster and stress your concerns rather than waffling. <laughs> He does an awful lot of waffle. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, stop humming and hawing and whatever and just blurt out the problem because he's not going to read the document. <laughs> um, but no, like, what's interesting is that like when you when we first meet Fibuli, he obviously comes across a little bit like a shmi. Do you know? Yeah, that, that's who... Not, not shmi, shmi, sorry. Shmi is Star Wars, shmi. Yeah. Um, no H. Um... Where it's all like, yes, Captain, yes, Captain, aye, aye, Captain, or whatever, and kind of the snivelling side, whatever. I think specifically for me, the Bob Hoskins version from Hook. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but as the story goes on, we see him more and more not cowering to the Captain. Like, he knows exactly what's going on. It's him, the Captain, and Zanxia at one point, is the three of them, like, when the doctor gets walks the plank, is the three of them laughing together. 
you know, he's not exactly under the captain's boot. Do you know, there's more eye rolls and the like, and more sort of exasperated looks, and like, for fuck's sake, like, whatever. Mm. Like, Fibbly is someone who clearly knows his job. He can do it very well. And he knows that for the most part, the captain is full of bluster. But be careful, because there's a dangerous point to that bluster as well. Do you know? Uh, like, he's not, like, Fibbly isn't stupid. No. Do you know? Um... But there's a part to that that I'll discuss more when I get to the captain, around the captain's bluster. I'll get to that more when I get to him. Um, but as a character, I think Fibbly's really interesting because like I said, he knows everything. Mm. He's number one. Do you know what I mean? He knows what's happening. He knows the truth of his anxiety. That's not a surprise for him. So you'd sort of expect in this story for the reveal that Zanxia was a hologram or whatever. You know, basically a hologram becoming real. You'd expect Fibbly to be like, oh my god, I didn't know that. No, he fucking knew all along. Yeah. <laughs> Dude knew, like. Um, and that makes me wonder, like, when he is showing fear, it's not fear of the captain. It's fear of her. Did the captain's bluster, but the captain speaks for her. Mm-hmm. So, there is a point where she will not stop the captain from killing him. And that's her doing. Or not she'll necessarily com- the captain. Or she'll command the captain to kill him. Yeah, so like, I, th- I think that makes Fibbly a really interesting character in the overall scheme of things, do you know? The way you've described it there is a sort of like Ned Stark, Robert Baratheon type relationship. Kind of, yeah. And I, I, I'll get to it when I get to the captain, but like, it, it's interesting. Like, what we see in the first five minutes is not their true dynamic. No. No, absolutely not. Because, are you, are you, are you any other points? Yeah. No, no, I'm done. Mm. So, like, it's <clears throat> this case of, oh, first of all, unscrupulous tech boffins, always entertaining antagonists. Mm. Always. Um, One thing I will say, though, is I can say, I feel that, like, for as long as you've worked with the captain, you think you know how to handle his mood swings and not place yourself in the firing line so much. Um, but... Well, that's why he always places himself on the end because you're aims to the middle. So he, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <and look ahead. laughs> um, but no, no, like it's what you see at the start. It's it kind of starts off as like this, uh, you know, put upon wearied employee and like the big fucking boss. Then it kind of transforms into more of like a Dick Dastley and Mutley type thing, mm. <laughs> where like you know, like there is. There is a good connection between the two of them. Mm. And as the story goes on, you see why Fibbly has stayed alive as long as he has. It's because he's very good at his job and he helps the he helps the captain through thick and thin. And so they are they are comrades. Even mm. though one of them shouts at the other the whole time and you know, like knows like, Well done, Mr. Fibbly, I'll most likely kill you in the morning <laughs> type thing. But I, I liked him. Like, there was no point there where I was like, going, oh, would you just fuck off? Yeah. Um, no, like, I, I liked him. He's an interesting villain hmm. because, like, in any other story, we would have been like, oh, he's not really a villain. He's just doing his job. But they were like, no, no, he actually does exactly what the fuck he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> and he has some great ideas on how to do it better. So, yeah, yeah no. <laughs> um, 
But then we have the captain. My first thought on the captain, right? Mm-hmm. And you'll know exactly who I'm referring to. My first thought was, I think we all had managers like him before. Yeah. And I'm thinking one person in particular, and you know who, exactly who that is. Mm-hmm. Doesn't listen to anything. He's like, get it done. Why didn't you do it? I was like, I fucking explained to you why <clears throat> that order wasn't ready. And why there was no anchovies on it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> person. Um, but why, very why, quick. <laughs> why do you continually send away people on the busiest night of the week? Thereby forcing me to stay late. Um, what we find out very quickly though. In comparison to that person. Mm-hmm. Is the captain is not an idiot. Yes. So like I was saying, like, oh Fibby, like he's not gonna read your report, so just get to the point. Just because he doesn't read them doesn't mean he can't. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean he doesn't understand them. He understands them very well. He just doesn't care. Because there's a way around it. The man is a genius. Do you know? And that's mm-hmm. made very clear. He's just also super impatient and rude. <laughs> but like, it because it, it, initially you're like, oh my God, this guy is all bluster. He's all power. He doesn't actually understand anything. Blah, blah. No, that's all an act. And that along with the pirate lingo, mm. like, oh, by the beard of the space Jesus or whatever. <laughs> I can't remember what he said. Sky Devil or something. Yeah, you're you're Christopher is showing. Fucking <laughs> Christopher. Um, I think a lot of that is just a fun play he does to keep himself entertained. Mm. Like, who is that for? Do you know? And this is a question I had because we know that Mister Fibbly is in on it. What about the guards? Like, were the guards people of Zanak, or were they part of the captain's crew? I think they're people of Zanak. Because that, to me, is the only reason why he's so fucking blustery all yeah. the time. Because there's no need for him to be like that in front of Fibuli and Zaxia. There's, mm. there's no need for that. Do you know what I mean? So I sort of get the feeling that, like, this pirate act is all a play. Like, it's all mm. nonsense to... A, keep himself entertained, because I'll get to in a second, like, the man is tortured, do you know what I mean? Mm. But also, to sort of keep up the image of, he's just all bluster. You know, Romana buys into it, because Romana doesn't have as much experience. Mm-hmm. Um, But towards the end, we do see, you do kind of start to feel bad for him, a bit. Mm-hmm. Because, like, when you hear the story, like, his ship crashed and he was healed and that's why he's like half metal she put him back together again and he's been her puppet ever since and you can tell because like his life is in her hands she has full control over him even when he's at his most blusterous he will stop Mm. if she tells him to and like she can control his metal arm. Do you know? She could make him kill himself. Yeah. She could make him 
killed someone else, like Fibuli, or his parrot. Um, but it's an interesting thing because at the end he's like, "Yeah, fuck you, bitch," like, and whatever. Because what I find super interesting about him is that we've now had two stories in a row where we have the villain who comes across as more than a little batshit crazy, who actually does care about his second in command. Because this is the thing. Like, he's all blustered with Fibuli and, like, Fibuli has to be on his toes or whatever, but he does care about him. Like, when like, Fibuli dies, he fucking loses it. Like, he cradles his body, you know? It's the same as your man last week. But also, he's devastated by the death of his robot parrot. Hmm. Do you know? And again, it's this thing of, like, if you take the sort of comparison to Hook. Yeah. Right? Captain Hook and Smee. Um, particularly if we're the Disney Captain Hook and Smee, in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, very close. They have a very good relationship. And yeah, the captain's like, Smee, Smee, whatever, you fucking need just whatever. But there's a level of care between mm. them. And just as how Captain Hook in the story of Peter Pan is fucking tied to Nether to Neverland and has this thing with Pan and Pan chopped off his hand. Mm-hmm. Fuck him, like do you know what I mean? And he's there to play the game, essentially. To, you know, Neverland has to have someone for Peter Pan to fight. That's how it works. You kinda of get the same sense here where he wants to be a pirate. He mm. wants to be out. The idea of moving around this giant fucking planet all the time. He's like, fuck, I hate it. He hates it. He hates it. He wants it to be over. And you kind of feel bad for him a little bit towards the end. And I'm like, I wasn't expecting to feel bad for you, buddy. <laughs> like, I really wasn't. Yeah, because he is a victim. Yeah. Any other... So I, I rambled a bit there. But no, no, no. Um... This is what happens when I go first. <laughs> Um, so a couple of things like I'm largely in agreement with you on this one okay mm. uh, largely in agreement with you for most of the stuff like there there are some elements of the story that mm. here he one defining characteristic of him for me is that he is he reminds me so much of the Kingpin from the comics mm. in the sense of everyone assumes that Kingpin is just this overweight rich guy no, he's inc- like, it's a de- it's a deception. He's incredibly mm. muscular, strong, and very smart. Here, the captain, no different. All bluster and bravado, amazingly intelligent. Like you know, and that's what I love about his like, He is a fantastic, both physical and intellectual threat for the doctor. Yeah, you know, uh, and I love when we have characters like that. Um, like a good combination of the two, like like one or the other is always good. I think I prefer mm. the intellectual opponents a bit more, mm. but like if you can marry the two together, perfect, happy out. Um, I did enjoy the I, I like you. I did kind of kind of at the end like you know, he's as much as a he is a victim. No, he's probably not a saint, seeing as how no. he was probably maybe a bit of a ne'er do well beforehand. Um. But and also, he, I imagine at the beginning he was super into it. Yeah, yeah. So he yeah. is he, but he is a victim as it goes on. My issue with, assignment with him, 
It's with the story surrounding him. Is that given how late the reveal of Xenexia was and how there wasn't a huge lot of build up to it, I think with the performance that we got from Bruce, we were robbed of some great internal conflict acting. Mm. Of him trying to rail against this unseen force that was affecting him. You know? Mm. Because, like, because like Zanexia herself says like that, like, after, like, after Califrax, to her, they're very close to their goal. Which would mean that, like, you know, at the start of the story, there's this ramp up of her trying to control him and maybe him trying to rail against it. Like, I would have just loved to have seen a bit more of an internal conflict of like this shadowy presence causing his mood swings. Mm. But that's an but that's not an issue with the captain. That's an issue with the story as such. I think. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. So. Um, and I, again I completely agree about like the relationship with Fibuli it is at the end of it and I, only, I think that's another thing as well is that um, because for me his death didn't resonate with me as much as I think it should ha- or it could have like it, mm. did, like it was a tragic death I, I do believe that but I didn't connect to it as much as I felt it could have mm. yeah yeah I can see that. I can see that. And then last we have the nurse or yes. Zanxia or Zanaxia as you call her, whatever. Um so right from the off I knew something was up with her. Because you sent me on a list of characters and one of them was called the attendant. Yeah. And I was doing like the preliminary prep for the trivia and there was no one called attendant mm. <laughs> in the TARDIS wiki. And I was like, who the fuck are you talking about? Um, but other than that, like right from the off, I knew something was wrong with her. I was like, okay, that's clearly who he meant. Because Paddy yeah. didn't tell me it was the nurse. He's like, I can't tell you, it's a spoiler. Yeah, because um, you, you give out to me when I spoil stuff. Yeah, well, you can tell me what fucking characters I'm to be paying attention to. <laughs> but, no, 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 sorry. Because like, I remember I asked about Sergeant Arnold. Uh, or Staff Sergeant mm-hmm. Arnold, and you were like, "Well, now I know that he's the fucking thing." And I was like, "Oh, well, I didn't. I shouldn't have said anything." No, just tell me her name. Okay, <laughs> you have to do. Fair enough. The nurse is an important character to it. Cool. <laughs> Rent, that's fine. Um, but even with that, like right from the off, the minute we see her there, I'm like, "Oh, that's who he meant." Because <laughs> there's something off about her. The minute you see her on screen. She hangs in the background. But even early on, we can see that she has some control over the captain. He stops blustering when she comes in. You know, she has she's a voice in his ear. You know, oh, you know, you really shouldn't kill two people in one day. Do you know? Which comes across as a nurse being like, oh, you're trying to maybe save, oh, the nurse trying to save the guards or whatever. It's like, no, no. She's like, don't kill Fibbly, you ginormous donkey. We need him. Do you know? Or the fact that, like, she's constantly hovering, you know, taking his temperature, giving him medication or whatever. Um, And as 
the episodes progress more and more, we see just how much power she has. To the point where eventually she's just lounging in his chair. <laughs> Do you know? And it's like, okay. Rightio then. And then episode four comes along. You find out exactly who she is. And she becomes this fantastic, maniacal villain. <laughs> like, I can totally see where this character was originally written to be have some connection to the master. Yeah, no, that's right. Like, episode four is just like hit after hit after hit when it comes to her. Um, her performance is outstanding. Like massive kudos to Rosalind, but she's such an interesting character because it's this addiction thing of not only does she want to be, you know, have this younger version of herself but she wants to be this whole version she, she doesn't care what she has to do to get it mm. do you know and you know she rallies against the doctor you know saying that like it, it's never like it's impossible like the exponential cost is impossible mm. um but at the same time it's only because he's saying that she'll never achieve it mm-hmm she has no issue. Like, if he said, like, oh, you'd have to destroy a million planets to get what you want, she'd be like, yeah. I'll destroy a million. Thanks. Thanks for giving me a number. Cheers. Mm. Do you know? But like, what she's rallying against is the idea that it would never be possible. Mm. That that's, that's, that's what she takes umbrage with. Do you know? It's like, how dare you say I'll never accomplish this? Um, overall, I thought she was very good. I think... Particularly female villains can be quite difficult mm. to write and to write well. I thought she was written very well. Like, you know there's something up with her. But the actual reveal is like, holy shit. Mm. You know, if you didn't know going into it, you'd be like, what the fuck? Like, that's a big reveal that you weren't expecting. Like, you were expecting that, like, you know, maybe it's the trio of the Captain Fibulian, the nurse... And they're all in cahoots together, but like you would never imagine that she was actually this queen that was mentioned as kind of a passing comment or in the first episode and that we saw this husk of a queen later on. Like you never I don't like I wouldn't have left to oh but clearly she's a younger version of the queen. Like never in my never in my wildest dream would I have jumped to that conclusion. How about you? Um so I I completely agree that I can see where the uh, where the comparison with the or the the master would have come into it, mm-hmm. and I think yeah, you know, like seeing Rosalind as the master would have been pretty cool. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the minute that so it's episode two that she first appears, and like her entire presence or her entire presence throughout the story until the reveal, it kind of reminds you of those things of where like like the fourth or fifth uh, movie in a franchise and they re- like they digitally insert like the surprise villain into older scenes and flashbacks. <laughs> like that's what kind of, like that's gonna kinda of, kinda of remind me of some of it. Also, when she was taking his thermometer because of the shape of it, I thought it was mm. a pipe. And she was just giving him a pipe to like you know like a pirate's pipe to puff on. Um <laughs> so again I think this was a fantastic concept for a character. Mm. 
it's a sort of weird Tom Riddle's diary quality to it, you know, where mm. this character is, for, for all intents and purposes, the original is dead. Mm. But they're living through this proxy. And this yeah. proxy is um, growing stronger all the time and is going to manifest itself along with all the powers therein. Um and I love that. I, I love that concept whenever it's used. Um, and throughout it, like, she's this, just, would someone please shut the fuck, her, get her to shut the fuck up uh, kind of character. And not that sort of like, oh, she's really naggy or annoying. It's in mm. the, she's getting under my fucking skin because of how uncomfortable she's making me. Mm. That type of thing. She's not like um, Hilda Winters. Mm. Yeah. Um, but the problem again the problem for me is with the late stage reveal of this character is that for me the the threat of, Z- of Zanexia or Zanxia returning just for, again for me hadn't been built up adequately enough she, she mm-hmm. was a mention in episode two, I can't remember if it was two or three I think it was two she was a mention, and then that was it until we see the um, the big reveal of like her coming back. So, like, like compared to last week, where we heard like the atrocities that the graph was guilty of. So as it go as the story goes on, we realize what a bloodthirsty maniac he actually is. So it it kind of ramps up and it builds, um, or not to the same extent, but Sutek. Sutek's threat is constantly built up. So when the Doctor finally faces Sutek, it's holy fucking shit. Here, it could have been that. From Again, this is just my personal feelings. It could have been that, but it hadn't been built up enough adequately for me. Much, much like the Captain's internal conflict, it just it didn't hit as fully as it could have. Again, just my, my feelings. I think for me, like I get where you're coming from. I wasn't looking for that with her, though. Like, my thing with her, like, what she did in the past was almost irrelevant. Hmm. She destroyed Zanuck. Do you know? And the captain came and the captain made it better. Right. I almost don't care about that. Right. My thing about it was her selfishness and callousness and ego that she would go to all of this effort to prolong her own life and that was set up from the off because that's why they were circling planets Hmm. so like i didn't want her to be sutek like i didn't need her to be you know, the the nightmare in the dark that the graph would have been to like the people that hear his name. Or I didn't need her to be that. Her, um, the magnitude of her coming back and her having power was in what she was willing to do to get it, because it was impossible for her to get what she wanted. With the fact that she was still going and going and going and faster and faster and faster and needing more and needing more. that mm. to me was interesting enough. Mm. I didn't need her to be anything else, personally. 
I think that's a difference of preference. But, yeah. Well, no, I, and I get that. I think, see, when it comes, see, this is the thing that I have, right? Is if you, if you lay the foundations for a boogeyman character and then they come back, for me, there needs to be this constant tread to make when they finally return, you go, oh, shit, the boogeyman has come back. Like, I think that's different. I didn't see them as laying her as the boogeyman. Do you know, they mentioned her. She was someone who existed in the past, and that was it. Hmm. Do you know, I didn't see her as yeah. the Zanuck boogeyman. Do you see, know, I think that's the difference. Yeah, and then like where, but whereas I like anytime there is a reference to a character from the past that they then bring back as like the main villain, I, it's like okay, I I felt like you should have been maybe building it up a small bit more. If she if she had just come back, like if there had been no mention of her, and the doctor had said. Like, uh, or if they had just found like the old Zanaxia and then the exposition had happened and then in the next episode there's the holographic version it's like okay cool everything is nice and confined and this person is a like, fucking psychotic killer and all this type of stuff um, and that's fine but again it's just my own personal thing which is like the, if you mention a boogeyman really early on and then they come and into later on you you just need to build them up a small bit but that's just my own mm. personal preference yeah which is why we have these conversations. Yes, absolutely. Your personal preference is perfectly valid. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but what I, but yeah. again, one thing I do want to completely make clear, performance-wise, done great. Rosalind did a really yeah. good job with this. And I, yeah, I, really fun. And she I, smacked Tom across the face. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one thing I will always state is that if story beats do not hit because of the writing, it is not the fault of the actress' performance. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree. So, we have reached so. the overall. Uh, as always, in the overall, myself and Trish will each give this story a score of five. Uh, so, Trish... You lead us off. So for me, this was a really good story. It was a really good mix of humor and passion. I need to preface something by saying I'm not the biggest Douglas Adams fan. I read Hitchhikers when I was like 11, I think. And you know my memory, Patty. I don't remember things very well. Um, and I only ever read the first one. I did see the American movie and thought it was shit. And within science fiction, I think Douglas Adams is kind of placed on a bit of a pedestal <laughs> that I have never prayed at. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, oh my god, Douglas Adams wrote this one. I'm like, oh cool. Whatever. Um, I will say though that just after watching this, I can see why people like him so much. Hmm. Do you know? I said, I read Hitchhikers when I was 11. I don't even remember it. The book. I remember very little of it. Um, <coughs> and like I said, the film was shit. So, um, but within 10 minutes of watching this, I immediately was like, yep, yeah, that's, you can tell. It's written by, it's Douglas Adams. You can tell. But it's Douglas Adams 
and Doctor Who. You know, there's so many sort of like nods to hitchhikers or you know ideas that are shared with hitchhikers. I think it would have been very. I was actually kind of afraid that this would be a Douglas Adams story and not a Doctor Who story. It is very. It is always a fear that when a prolific prolific writer for a certain type of thing, like does, like does a story of a particular popular show, that it just goes completely off the wall. You know. Yeah, but also like. You know, everyone was used to go on about Shadow. Oh my God, like the lost Douglas Adams story. I can't believe the Douglas Adams story. I'm like, mm. are you upset because it's a lost story or because it's Douglas Adams? Mm. Like, whatever. Point of all that, right, is just to preface the fact that I'm not a Douglas Adams fangirl, right? <laughs> I did really enjoy this. I really, really did. I thought the mix of humour and passion. I don't know what the head of serials was on about. This is perfect Doctor Who. It's not slapstick comedy, but it's good comedy. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I think went over the top, I think the captain blustering was a bit annoying. But then when I got to the end and I realized how much of a performance that was, I actually thought it was kind of cool. Do you know? <laughs> I sort of I sort of changed my mind on it once I got to the end. Um It's an interesting concept with a horrifying impact. Mm. I think the performers took the script and created something really, really good with it. Each performance was great and memorable. I don't think anyone was a low ball performance. Even like Mula and everyone, they were all really, really good. I was massively impressed with it. I like the fact that the Doctor and Romana have more of a friendly relationship this time around. Um, I like that we get to see Romana do more than we did last week. In terms of the callouts that you had specifically... I can understand those. They weren't an issue for me. Mm, yeah. Um, I wasn't looking for a prolonged internal struggle for the captain. I liked the more the story went on. We saw how she was controlling him. I liked it being subtle. I didn't need it to be him realizing at the beginning of the story that he needs to combat her or whatever. Um, and I like the fact that I said in my mind Zanxia wasn't made out to be the boogeyman she was a figure from their past that was mentioned in the context of this is how we became a mining planet and that was it and the reveal of the old Zanxia had me intrigued I'm like okay are they trying to keep the old Zanxia alive and eventually they release the time lock and she'll take over again the reveal that your one is actually a younger incarnation of her and she's trying to regenerate herself as a younger that I was like holy fuck <laughs> um, and that for me was more than enough I was happy with that reveal I was happy with that I think to get what you wanted I think the story would need to have been longer Um, it needed to have been a six yeah. I think to have those elements really done well and that would have given Mula a bit more to do and it would have given Romana a bit more structure however you know how I feel about sixes sixes are very difficult to get right very easy to get wrong Hmm. and sometimes good concepts don't stretch to a six yeah no absolutely so for me it was an enjoyable experience. I loved watching it. There were certain bits I went back and watched 
couple of times over. It's been a while since I've done that, where I've rewound and like, I need to watch that scene again. I need to watch. That's been a while. So for me, it was actually a five out of five. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I originally I was like, oh, I'm gonna give it a four point five, and then I'm like, but what did I actually not like about it? I was like, I didn't like the captain blustering. It was very annoying. I gave it by the end. I felt really sorry for him. So I was like, actually, <laughs> that doesn't bother me at all. Um, and I sort of chalked the captain's blustering up to, it was like, in the Romans, I had an issue with Nero being a giant perv. Yeah. But in the end, it didn't detract from the story no. for me. No. Do you know? So for me, it's a five. And like I said, I wanted to prefix my five with the fact that I'm not a Douglas Adams fangirl. Hmm. Because I went into this being like, okay, this is the Douglas Adams story. Fine. Impress me. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like, I challenged this DVD before I hit play. <laughs> I'm like, you actually have more to do than any other story because people bow at the altar yeah. that is your writer. Mm-hmm. Impress me. And honestly, it did. Kudos. That's awesome. Well done. I'm interested to see Shada. I'm I'm more interested now in watching Shada because I know that Douglas Adam Douglas Adams's Doctor Who is just Doctor Who. Yeah, because you gave me the novelization of Shada for my birthday, mm. and I really enjoyed it. Mm. And City of Death is a really good one as well because good concept plus Julian Glover's in it, and he he mm. fucking knocks it out of the park. So yeah, but. so you looked very surprised at my five (laughs) no it's not so much surprise it's like that i i think what it is is that like going into the unknown when you Mm. when you're past your comfort zone of doctor who Mm. finding new perfect stories it's 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 cool like because like Mm. Like, so it's a case of like everything that's like over a four, like, you know, it's like between a four and a five. It's always great to see that you're still mm-hmm. able to enjoy the show despite not knowing what's coming next or anything like that. Mm. So that yeah. like so like, su- surprise is actually it's happiness more so than anything. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. How about you? Because I'm feeling you're not a five. <laughs> I actually Am I, I wrong? <laughs> so I actually a um, couple couple of things. I have a I ha- I have this this weird connection or near weird memory to this story. So bit of a background to this. Indulge me if you will, people. A long time ago, Trish, wonderful Trish, helped me get a my a job that moved me out of home and kept me sane. For yeah, a, a job time. that was previously alluded to in this podcast <laughs> yes it was yeah so she had me get a job so early working away the job and then one day i get a call from trish she's sick would i mind going in and covering her shift so i needed the money i said yeah absolutely went in cover the shift came home and i watched this story but i was but the thing is i was very ill because there was a thing in work which was that if the food was ever unclaimed we were allowed partake if we so wanted mm-hmm. to. Must have been a bad fucking batch of whatever because I went home and I got fucking sick as a dog watching when I was watching this. So I'll always remember this story as the time that I covered for you I got fucking sick as a result. <laughs> um, this is why you shouldn't eat from that particular place if I didn't make your food. Yeah. Or if you didn't make it yourself. 
I didn't make it myself. Um, In fairness, the, the the food from that place is actually really nice. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just you have a preference when you work there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but anyway, so I have that memory of it, and I kind of said it to Trish just in, like the as we were just between recording. Um, I found this one really hard to write or re, you know, write the the summary for because it was just very very jargony, and I think. That act, that took away from my appreciation of the story, because when we first came into this, this was settling at a three point five. Oh Jesus! Yeah, but then as I recapped the story, I was able to actually focus on everything properly, as opposed to having to write down the summary. And sometimes I have time to go back and rewatch the story in its entirety. Not all the time, but sometimes I do. And this is one of those times which is like maybe if I had done the rewatch, my score would be initially higher. Um. But for the most part, I really enjoyed this story. I really do. Fantastic concepts. Great performances by everyone. Tom back on form. Mary coming out of, you know, like blossoming into the role. Mm. Uh, John Neeson just being, he's uh, wonderful. Um, And like, I, again, like I was thinking that maybe there was a couple of elements here that there were like there was that was a bit too ambitious, and I could see where your man Graham McDonald was coming from. But and that I think that's mostly in relation to the Mentiads, because there there's some stuff there that's still unexplained, and I'm hoping the novelization will uh, pick up. Now I don't I never like criming a story for leaving stuff in the subtext or like you know like the, the unspoken because it's, sometimes it's, it's just not always fair sometimes there's just, there's just not stuff there you know and it's just mm. us projecting our own thoughts onto things um but here i think it's more genuine curiosity than uh like a fucking oh why you know why isn't this explained properly you know um so i'm putting this at a 4.5 mostly because as i said just with the way that I interpreted the story beats. Mm. It was just missing the impact that it could have had. I and again, so. that's again, that's primarily down to the reveal of Zanexia and looking. And the whole thing was that it's like, it's only a case of looking back, which is like, all right, if this is the avenue they went, and because of these one or two little bits, I really wish they'd done this because I wanted to see the internal conflict acting by Bruce because he, his performance as the captain was great, you know. Mm. The way that he would just switch emotions from being like again, we talk about Tom's part in the the what's it for? Mm. Bruce's performance is great because he's like, oh, your appreciation is wonderful, and then it's like straight back to the anger. It's like an insane art. It's like an insane artist who thinks his work is finally being appreciated, and it's like, no, no, like your 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 work is twisted. You are a twisted individual. But it's also interesting to rewatch that scene, knowing the twist that comes at the end. Yeah, mm. that it wasn't his choice necessarily mm. to do all this, mm. but out of it he created this cool thing. And he's like, yeah. "But I made this amazing thing out of something so terrible." And he's like, "Yeah, no, no, no you created this amazing thing by doing something terrible." <laughs> what the hell? Um, oh. which is actually, which actually, now that I think it's an interesting way of looking at it that like they were leaving behind these shells and he made them into something interesting. Mm. Do you know? Um, 
Yeah. But no, still, 4.5 isn't fucking to shake a stick at. You know no, I mean? it's, not, it's not. like, And again, like, it's, it's a case of like, I, I've i only read Hitchhikers. So like, your thing with Douglas mm-hmm. Adams, is, it, it's kind of similar to mine, which is like, I'm not like kind of going, he's the fucking be all and end all. But yeah. I like the ideas that he has come up with and the the, the story concepts. And it's just like, I, that, I don't know if you heard of it, but he had that other one, like Dirk Gently Solicited Detective Agency. Mm. Like, yeah, he's just a detective who turns up because he feels he needs to be there at the moment. Meanwhile, there's a holistic assassin who only f- kills the people that she feels need to be killed. And it, it all works out in this perfect, weird synchronicity. It's like, that's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, my th- uh, uh, and I want to kind of like uh, I don't know why I feel the need to explain this, but I think because there are certain people who are like, oh my god, you don't like Douglas Adams? It's not that I don't like Douglas Adams. That's not it at all. I have the same with Douglas Adams that I have with Neil Gaiman. I was just going to say his that name. that I had with Boba Fett. Do you know? Um, I think sometimes people put writers or actors or characters on a pedestal and it's like okay but that writer or that actor or that character do they work in this story like we're like oh my god neil gaiman you know has to write for doctor who i'm like neil gaiman is a fantastic writer can he write doctor who because it's not writing a neil gaiman story it's writing a doctor who story yeah and my thing with the, with the douglas adams thing is because everyone's like oh my god shadow 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 whatever i'm like is it a Douglas Adams story or is it a Doctor Who story? And that's where I get a bit squiggy. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> the I way I would describe it. It, it is understand- I mean? it's very understandable. Do you know? Um, and Doctor Who is one of the few shows from a writing perspective that I have that problem. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really look into like, or what this was maybe people do but like i don't really pay attention to like who writes the different episodes of star trek um i've never heard of somebody like oh my god like you know i, I someone I think, has to write an episode of star trek i you know think I mean? um what is it is it harlan ellison city on the edge of tomorrow or city on the edge, on of, edge of forever at the edge of forever like that's the the, the douglas adams episode yeah, yeah but like, i you don't really hear too much about people being like oh my god can you imagine if Neil oh, Gaiman wrote an episode of Star Trek. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. For some reason, it seems to come up with other media, but it always seems to come up with Doctor Who. I think that's because you have a lot of really great world-renowned British writers of mm. fantasy science fiction, and yeah. Doctor Who is the British science fiction mm. fantasy show. Like, so I've heard, the I've heard people saying, like, oh my God, wouldn't it have been great if Terry Pratchett mm. had done a Doctor Who? I'm like, Terry Pratchett, amazing. But can he write Doctor Who? I mean, just because someone's amazing at writing their own stuff it doesn't, doesn't make them amazing at this. It doesn't always you know? translate over. It doesn't. No. Um, so I had my sort of anti-fanboy backup a little bit. I'll, I'll freely admit it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm actually really looking forward to the future Douglas Adams ones. Like I said, um, I had I had read the bit that like Pirate Planet wasn't novelized. I hadn't realized it wasn't obvious while Douglas was alive, but they have done it since. So I might actually get that myself as well. Um, nice. And do you know what? I'm going to have a quick look because while I do 
five physical books. You want to see if it's an audible so you can listen to it on the way to work? Yes. Um, <laughs> for anyone who's interested, most people aren't, but anyone who is. Um, I have a rather large book collection. It's not as big as Paddy's. Um, but I prefer to absorb my books in audio format. It just is easier for me. I listen to books pretty much everywhere I go. Driving, working, in the shower, in bed, literally everything I'm doing, I am listening to a book. Um, and then I buy the physical version as a backup for when Audible inevitably burns. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I once, like, apparently, not apparently, I once, like, underestimated my book collection by, like, 150 books. Yeah, like, I, like, people make fun of me. I say people. My family makes fun of me because you're aware of this. I have a book tracker. Yeah. Which is an Excel spreadsheet that lists all of my books. Mm-hmm. But it lists them. And then I've got a column where there's like a hardback, a paperback, a signed book, or an audiobook. So there's some books that tick like multiple boxes. <laughs> so I don't have anywhere near as many books as you. But like if you add it up, like I have like <laughs> 300 physical books plus. 300 audible books plus mm, yeah. so many books on my kindle it, it sort of all adds up um wait what am i looking for uh on audible. yes it is it is there and i have credits so nice. bye now there's actually a few um douglas adams ones in there so there's city of death is there shadow is there and Doctor Who and the Cricket Men, based on a storyline by Douglas Adams. They have his name in big giant letters on the front, like (laughs) as in his name is in bold, and the poor bastard who actually wrote it, his name is like buried at the bottom. (laughs) But it's the same guy. (gasps) Okay, now now I'm going to love this. Guess who does the novelization? Guess who the narrator is? It's John Coltrane. It is John Coltrane. Okay, if this it, is going to be great. If it's Tom, then it's probably going to be John Coltrane. Yeah. Okay, this is going to be great. Okay, I'm happy now. Okay. Um, We've gone a complete tangent. This is completely rambled into Trish Buys a Book. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to make a point, though. Yes. Circling back to the actual podcast, right? Uh, we had said last week that... Mm-hmm. In an unofficial way, this season is competing against the Keys of Marinus. Mm-hmm. At the moment, on average, this season is winning. Yes. Keys of Marinus was a four. And currently, on average, this is a 4.25 for you and a 4.5 for me. So, we'll have so, to see. Is it going to continue? Yes. Uh, next week, when we move on to The Stones of Blood. Ooh. That's a creepy title. It is. <laughs> Until then, though. Yes. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>